0: Today, we have the psychedelic keys and the associated laboratory technology to better examine the arena of communion with spirit, and to better explore the notion that mind may well have come before matter. We have rediscovered substances that allow conscious access to other realms, and simultaneously we have technology and scientific methodology that can investigate these experiences and test whether these realities truly exist. This is not new work, The ancients of Eleusis in Egypt did exactly the same work, the priests fulfilling the role of today's scientists in their method of inquiry. They tested and tried their entheogens. It wasn't just a belief-based system, they were experiential in their quests, truly examining the experience of the Other and assessing its insights and profferings. At the time, it was the greatest work an intellectual searcher could do, and ancient religious scriptures are full of these endeavors. The purpose of the dialogues at this symposium are to reinvigorate this union between science and spirituality, and to take it both to an experiential and experimental level. We need to thoroughly assess these experiences, and create experiments to test their validity. And we can do this. Our methodology involves taking six brave psychonauts in separated laboratory conditions, and testing them for telepathy, television, mutual communion, visual landscape corroboration, and eventually, co-related mutual communion with alternative sentient presences—beings—within the domain of mind space. For what can be more important in this time of self-induced ecological destruction than effective connection to divinity, to the gods, to seek advice and ask for guidance, to inspire our leaders to seek guidance too, as the ancients did, to bring reverence to this communion, and teach our brothers and sisters to act accordingly to bring the light of spiritual communion to what is currently a dark world, and to seek help so that we won't self-destruct, but will instead flourish and evolve into the highest potential of our human being. Hosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people, welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the psychedelic duo, Jay and Rory Wicks. Hello. Yeah, uh,
1: that, that, that'll work.
0: <laughs> on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. And we're back in the mind space.
1: No, it's just a basement.
0: I prefer to think of it as a mind space. Hmm. I prefer to think of everything as a mind space. All of this is an illusion. I am talking to myself alone in a
1: basement. Uh, You know, as much as we talk about the whole simulation thing, I feel like that's not how this works.
0: I, I feel like that is exactly the message that I have taken. That nothing outside of me exists, so there's no consequences to any of my actions.
2: Then so why haven't you killed me yet?
1: And also, um, did you miss the whole part about ego death? No, I missed that part. Yeah, okay. No,
0: my ego stands strong. My ego will defeat God in single combat.
1: And this is why you're stuck. Oh, I <laughs> Nick, this is why
2: you've been reincarnated so many times. You're not volunteering to come back here. They're not letting you to the next place.
0: Turns out, I'm like that. Uh, I'm like that. That guy who's like in his 30s, but keeps coming back to high school because he doesn't. He doesn't think he can handle life beyond it, so he keeps intentionally failing.
1: I'm. I'm pretty sure at, at some point they're just gonna kick you out. Yeah, they do. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, that makes sense now that I say it out loud. No, I mean, I guess what, uh, never mind, we're not, gonna get into the eth- we're not going to get into the, we're not going to get into the specifics of high school rules Well, right they wouldn't,
1: now. Le- they would let you go back for your GED and you would go to like night school or, or a different program, but you're not going to stay inside a high school at 30 years old. Yeah. Although Period.
0: The image of like a 75 year old man sitting in a high school classroom is funny, especially <laughs> if he gets bullied.
1: I, I see. I don't see that as funny so much as um, creepy.
0: I was gonna go with deeply sad.
1: That too. All right. So uh, today we are
0: reading DMT entity encounters dialogues on the spirit molecule.
1: Um, so, guys, what did you think about this book?
2: It was really dense. Yeah, Funny. I mean, that yeah. was
1: the first word that came to my mind was dense too. Uh, it was very interesting, uh, mm-hmm. very interesting, but um, it was boring. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there were definitely I think that uh like any time we read an anthology style book it, there are you know portions which really hit and portions which miss. Uh so what this book is is a transcription of a meeting that happened in England in 2017 where they brought in all of these uh thinkers, philosophers, scientists, mathematicians and they basically had them give talks related to the topic of DMT entity encounters. And we're going to get into this in the summary, but for those at home who don't know what we're talking about, DMT is a psychedelic drug. Uh, it is naturally occurring in many plants, but it is also available in a synthetic form. Well, I shouldn't say available. It is illegal. Yeah. Uh, however, the, there, it does have a strange propensity for those who take it to encounter uh, entities, and these entities seem to exist in some other psychedelic world. Uh, you might have heard them referred to as the machine elves. At least that's where I had heard of them before coming into this book.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd heard references to the machine elves.
1: Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I zoned out for a second. You were talking to the
0: machine elves.
1: No, no, I was thinking about, because you said DMT, uh, you know, was a naturally occurring substance, and I was trying to remember if our brain produces DMT. It does. Yeah, and we're pretty sure that it's produced by the pineal gland.
2: Yeah. Yep. It's uh, what lets us dream.
1: Yeah.
0: Yep, and uh there is some, uh, we'll get into this in the uh summary, but there's some who contend that uh it is a that that chemical is also released in our brains upon death. And so those who uh, don't believe in any sort of afterlife, they point to that as the source of the near death uh near death experience visions.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: But, you know, we go back to some of the other things we've read that doesn't quite explain how those visions happened while the brain was dead
1: also it doesn't explain how you see things that are actually happening
0: yeah yeah a lot of holes in that theory we're not going to go too deep into that uh so this uh like many times uh, like many other anthology style books we've covered uh this is going to be covering a wide range of topics as always i this is not going to be in sequential order I've tried to split this out kind of in lines of uh, what approach the speaker took to the topic, be it scientific, uh, experiential, things like that. Um, We're not going to be hitting every essay in the book, I believe.
2: There's like six or seven.
0: No, there there are 12 essays, and we're going to be covering seven of them.
2: That's what I meant.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm about to say, I know there's more than seven because I hit seven. All
1: right. What did they ever do to you?
0: Uh, oh, I mean a lot. They cut me off in traffic. Uh, they gave me some bad Wall Street advice. I lost a lot of money.
1: Yeah, that all right, that's worth it then. Why, I beat why are the you hell taking
2: why are you taking financial advice from essays in a book about DMT?
1: Well, clearly I was on DMT.
2: God damn it, <laughs> Nick. Stop doing DMT on weeknights. Are are we ready to get started? Uh yeah. Yep.
0: Okay. Part 1 The Scientific Approach In 2017, a group of scientists, philosophers, professors, and doctors gathered in Tiringham Hall, a stately manor house located in Tiringham, England, with the purpose of exploring one of humanity's most ancient, widespread, and poorly understood experiences those journeys into the psychedelic realm. Over four days, they shared their theories, debated, discussed, and dissected the seeming intersection between science and spiritual realities. This book is the product of that event. The primary substance we will be discussing in this book is dimethotryptamine, commonly known as DMT. This extraordinarily powerful psychedelic is found in a wide range of animals, and likely nearly every plant on the planet. It is also naturally occurring within humans, and some researchers have suggested that it is the chemical released when we die, and which generates the visionary experiences reported in near-death experience testimonies. Unique among its psychedelic brethren, the DMT experience features one element which is the core focus of the discussions presented in this book, emergence into alternative realities, filled with seemingly intelligent entities whom often greet the psychonaut as an old friend, and are often all too happy to give them a tour of their strange reality. Are these entities and the world in which they exist ontological realities, or mere illusions presented by a brain's interaction with a simple yet powerful organic molecule? If they are but illusion, what can that tell us about the functioning of the human brain? And if they are real, what does that tell us about the nature of divinity, the paranormal, and consciousness? It is these questions and more which the conference attendees seek to explore and, as economist and on-the-side psychedelic researcher Alton Bilton writes in the introduction, to potentially find that elusive bridge between a scientific understanding of the world and a spiritual one. We start our journey on stable footing, the Western scientific perspective, beginning with the fourth chapter of this book, titled Subjective Experiences and Sensed Presence Phenomenon in Human Research with DMT, by neuroscientist Dr. Chris Timmerman. At the Imperial College of London, Timmerman has been engaged in an ongoing study of the effects of DMT on the human brain, with the hope of finding a way that psychedelics may provide an avenue to progress research into the hard problem of consciousness. As to why he chose synthetic DMT as the vehicle for his research, Timmerman notes that among all psychedelics, DMT provokes an altered state which is uniquely suited for laboratory work. For starters, the visionary experience of DMT is relatively short, with most trips lasting only 10 minutes, as opposed to the often hours-long voyages experienced with other compounds such as LSD. With a condensed time frame, it becomes easier to track the phases the patient goes through while sinking into and rising out of the visionary experience, with the overall goal of determining what is happening within the physical human brain at the moment that an entity encounter occurs. Also, unlike other psychedelics, DMT, specifically when taken in its synthetic, short-acting form, does not often disrupt one's thinking brain, or ego. Conversely, compounds such as LSD and other natural sources of DMT, such as ayahuasca, tend to provoke longer journeys, during which the psychonaut often experiences ego death. Thus, divorced from the subjective experience, the patient is ill-equipped to translate their experiences into language that is useful to researchers. And finally, while those experiencing LSD trips often report sensing another presence, only DMT seems to provoke encounters with fully visible and audible entities, a facet that was immediately discovered upon the first test of synthetic DMT by its discoverer, Stephen Zarza. His earliest test subjects reported encounters with many of the same kinds of entities often reported by modern psychonauts, long before those elements became known parts of the cultural mythos of DMT. Of those early experiments, Timmerman notes, quote, So, this is quite special. We are not only seeing entities popping up, but specific characteristics that color these encounters. For example, the feeling of being at home, the welcoming spirit of it all, as well as descriptions of dwarves and elves. This is quite interesting because when these experiments took place is a time when people didn't know much about DMT, They actually practically didn't know anything at all, and certainly SARS's participants didn't. So, the influence of cultural set and setting was not there. Nevertheless, you see these recurrent characteristics popping out. These encounters were almost always preceded by a strong feeling of vibration, and the swelling of sounds until the psychonaut experienced a breakthrough, in which they seemed to pierce past our physical reality and into some far stranger landscape. Often, this experience comes with a profound sense of joy or contentment. And as for the entities themselves, the subjects have no doubt that what they are interacting with is a real, thinking entity that represents some other form of intelligence. Of course, the reality of said entities is still unknown from a scientific viewpoint, yet they feel intuitively real. In fact, many of Timmerman's subjects noted that they were the ones visiting the entities in their home, by transporting their consciousness into that other realm, a place often described in the same terms heard from NDE experiencers as being realer than real. Other common effects include seeing impossible geometric patterns and feeling a total loss of one's sense of body, instead existing as an amorphous, disembodied consciousness. Also common were feelings of oneness, spiritual epiphany, and the sense that for a moment they understood the entirety of the universe. The spiritual messages received often focus on a theme of oneness. As one of Timmerman's patients said, I was being shown the interconnectedness, and there was a sense of having to try and pay attention. It was as if a presence or something was trying to make me pay attention to lessons or things that were happening so that I could remember them, and a lot of it seemed to be about compassion, gratitude, empathy, and kindness. It felt, I suppose, transcendent in that realm, that it was very much as if I was a child back in church being reminded of the important lessons. However, regardless of how compelling these experiences are from a subjective perspective, from a scientific perspective, many argue that they reveal more about the soft meat of our brains rather than any transcendental realities. This is the principal argument made by Dr. Michael Winkleman in Visionary Experiences, Entities, and Alien Worlds. Unlike many of the other speakers we will be discussing in later sections, Winkleman sees no reason to believe that the DMT trips reveal anything that is real in an external, objective sense. However, that does not mean it doesn't merit study. Quote, We can't trust the evidence of our senses. They don't necessarily function in ways that represent what's really out there. On the other hand, I think that it's foolish to discount these experiences. I think that these experiences are very important information about how the brain functions about how our mind functions, about the relationship between these exogenous neural transmitters and our own endogenous neural transmission system. On this, Winkleman notes that the entity encounters reported by psychonauts share many similarities with entity encounters which occur in the waking sober world. These include alien abduction experiences, encounters with godly entities, and other such manifestations of high strangeness. Rather than seeing this as proof that these entities somehow exist outside the brain, he rather sees this as evidence that our brains are somehow wired to generate entity encounters, and the propensity is merely greatly enhanced by DMT. This, he says, should be the foundation for a new discipline of study, one which explores what it is about our hardware that makes us predisposed to generating these fanciful illusions, a field he dubs Entitytology. Which would encompass angelology, demonology, spiritology, and all other facets of the paranormal.
1: And you know this guy, and this guy was so close, like to having what I what I thought would be like a, a relatively good idea, the, the whole idea
0: of a unified.
1: But the yeah, like this uh, entityology or whatever is just fucking. It's just ridiculous.
0: It, it feels very dismissive. It's let's throw everything into a bucket and we'll explain it away and be done with
1: it. No, that's exactly what it is. It's very dismissive. And especially when, when it comes up when he's like, you know, I think that DMT, you know, DMT is just uh, enhancing these illusions or whatever. It's like, well, um, yes, but it's that, 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 that idea that it's all, it's all just fake, even though shit happens people see this shit without DMT. Right. And that's the part where it's like, but buddy, you're missing like the whole other half of this.
2: One quote from him haunts me where he he mentioned angelology and he's like, could you believe that? That there's already an angelology out there? And I'm like, oh, so you're really ignorant.
1: Like that's been around for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. And I've never uh, in my life heard the term angelology.
0: I, I have, but like, on the cover of books in new age stores,
1: right? Uh, yeah, okay, so uh, yeah, I've but like amongst people that we've talked about when it comes to and like either that we've talked about, read about, or talked to about angels, I've never once heard them call it angelology.
2: It's a bit difficult to say,
1: yeah. I mean, it's no harder than entityology, right? Uh, I don't know, uh, just, this guy kind of made me mad.
0: Well, you're not going to like what's next, because to further explore this idea, he turns to evolutionary psychology and the study of the prepackaged capacities and abilities that seem to be with us upon birth. For example, an infant's ability to learn language by simple immersion into an environment in which it is spoken is seen as one of these capacities, another one of which is known as the hypersensitive agent detection device, or agency detection device, which is the part of the brain that is able to determine the difference between a living thing and an inert, dead thing. It is this sense which is often fooled, giving rise to the phenomenon of parandolia, in which people see living creatures or other humans where there are none. Quote, Another adaptation for social life was what has been called the intrapersonal intelligence, which is a metacognitive self-awareness in which we don't just behave, but we're aware of our own capacities. We're aware of how our desires or motivations may affect behavior, and consequently, we can reflect upon options rather than just behaving. But in essence, we become very aware of our own self-qualities, and we inevitably project our own self-qualities onto everything, including nature, which is the fundamentals of animism. In other words, when we perceive something as like human, regardless of if it is a real, living thing or not, we then project our own sense of agency upon it, hence leading to the intuitive certainty of the entity's agency as reported by Timmerman's subjects. The fact that the vast majority of entity encounters, be they DMT-induced or not, involve humanoid entities only supports his argument that we are applying human qualities to what are fundamentally illusionary experiences. In fact, most of the phenomenon reported during psychedelic trips, he believes, can be explained as the drug having disabled some of these innate capacities. For example, he argues that we have a capacity for perceiving the flow of time, and of spatial dimensions, and that when these capacities go offline, we may experience the sense of timelessness or oneness often reported during psychedelic and other anomalous experiences. He further asserts that the illusionary nature of DMT entities can be proven, and that the first step in doing so would be to have the psychonaut attempt to engage said entity in assisting the psychedelic research by appearing to different psychonauts on different trips, and perhaps sharing a code word or otherwise expressing its own independent agency, he hypothesizes that they would fail in this task, as the entities are not truly real beyond one's own inner mindscape, though, as of yet, no such experiment has been performed. Which brings us to our first discussion question. So, Coming into this book, were you inclined to think that psychedelic voyages reflected some form of transcendental reality, or did you think that they were entirely the product of a drug playing merry hell on our gray matter? And did reading this book challenge or adjust that preconception? And as a bonus question, what experiences have you had, if any, with psychedelics or psychedelic experiences?
1: I feel like that bonus question was just for me.
0: I mean, it it kind of was I kind of have an experience, but it wasn't willing.
1: Yeah. So I guess I'll go first here. So coming into this book, um, so I, I want to—I guess I want to look at this two different from two different perspectives. Prior to starting the show, I would have told you that psychedelics don't necessarily do anything for the sake of walking that the path to enlightenment or opening up your mind or anything like that. Um. For the most part. Like the, I, would, I would have said something like the vast majority of people don't have any kind of experience like that outside of those that do it within their religious practice. Now, having um, uh, over a year, almost a year and a half's uh, experience of deep diving into research like this and having tangentially touched on this topic with other things that we've uh, read and talked about, uh, my 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 opinion has been changed on on this. Um, I'm still very weary of certain psychedelics like LSD specifically. Um, but I do believe that if you go into this experience with the mind with the correct mindset, that you can have a very good experience that could ultimately lead to something like ego death. Um. I, I don't, but that being said, I do think that there is, the, and I know for a fact that there are people when they go and they, have, they go through psychedelic experiences, they come out with the drug having had played merry hell on their gray matter, as you said, uh, because I know somebody who took too much LSD and fried their brain. They're toast. They're done. Their entire personality is shifted. Their entire life has changed uh, because of that.
0: And not for the better.
1: No, not for the better. Like, uh, they are a shell of themselves.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is a mutual friend of Rory and I's. And oh, I,
1: they are not my friend.
0: Well, used to be a mutual friend. Yes. Uh, and I've only met them once since that occurred, and they, it, they are a completely different person. It's yes. like someone scooped them out and put a different person in that skin.
1: Yeah, they're... Completely, it's uh, the uh, the best word is that that comes to mind is mindless
0: invasion of the body snatchers. Except this body snatcher is a stoner.
2: They, they've also become completely amoral and unable to take responsibility for their actions, like uh, you know, robbing their sister of close to a thousand dollars and being like, "What? What's the big deal? I found it in your drawer, so I just took it."
1: Yeah. There's a lot of problems with this person, and, and, and it all stems from this one, in, in this one. It was one instance of using LSD that, that did this. Um, so it, it can kind of go either direction. And I think how you approach it, how you go into it, plays a really big part of that. I think your mindset, what your goal is. For the drug, if your goal is just to fucking trip out, there's a good chance you're gonna come out fried, you know. But if you do this responsibly, uh, and you're going in with a, I, I I'll say the correct in quotations mindset, then I think that there's a chance that you're gonna have a good experience. Now, that being said, there are people that have gone in with no intention of having this and then experienced something like this, or you know, experienced crazy life changing. Life-altering experiences, so uh, it's almost like a coin flip on on whether or not what's going to happen.
0: One of the uh, one of the speeches I didn't have room to get to in the summary was all about that: how set and setting impacts the trip that you end up on. Uh, where if you go in, you know, uh, if you go in super nervous about taking this drug, and in an unfamiliar place that makes you uncomfortable, surrounded by people you don't trust you're going to have a bad time.
1: Yeah, that's why I am a huge advocate for trip sitters when it comes to utilizing psychedelics, having somebody there that's going to be able to help pull you calm you down, pull you out, whatever needs to be done, put you to bed, you know. As for the bonus question, what experiences have I had if any with psychedelics or psychedelic experiences? Well, I've had a few. Um I've taken most of them. Uh, I haven't taken DMT. I've done acid. I've done mushrooms. Uh, I've done mushrooms and acid at the same time. That was an experience.
0: Didn't you accidentally do peyote once?
1: I did accidentally do peyote once. Was uh, it opium? Uh, no, opium. Yeah, not peyote. Uh, that, I got into a car accident with that one. Uh, I didn't know for the record, that I was smoking opium. I found out a year later <laughs> that I had smoked opium um, because the said person who packed the bowl thought it would be funny to, uh, to have us smoke opium and then me not know. Uh, and then he, but he didn't know at the time that I was going to leave after a few minutes and go to work because I had to go to work that day. And then I was driving to work, and it was raining, of course, you know. And uh, the, the, the water, as it was coming down, looked to be about the size of a softball as it was hitting and splashing down on my car, which was wild. Uh, and then I rear-ended somebody in the rain because I hydroplaned to the back of their car. And uh, I was kind of a punk. If you haven't gathered that. <laughs> yeah, you were. Uh, and so I was wearing, uh, I was, I got out of my car, you know, when the, when the accident happened and I was wearing an insane clown posse beanie. Uh, and the guy was on, uh, Like called the cops or whatever. And I, he said to the cops, he was uh, like, when he was on the phone then with uh, the dispatcher or whatever, he was like, yeah. Uh, th- this kid just rear-ended me, and I think drugs might be involved. And while he wasn't wrong, he had no evidence of this, other than my probably very perplexed look of like I don't know where I am right now. How dare you make accurate assumptions? Yeah. Um, but uh, and what's what's funny about this uh, this whole this whole scenario is I, I didn't end up getting a ticket at all because my dad showed up. He had, he was just driving by and saw that I was pulled off to the side of the road, saw my truck. He pulled off and he ended up talking to the cops. I don't know what he said. Other than I know at one point he said something like, uh, you know, that I was like in shock, yada, 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 whatever. Cause I had never gotten to an accident before. And I hadn't, I had only been, I was 16 or 17 at the time. So I'd only been driving for a little bit. Um, but I ended up getting nothing like, both cars were fine ultimately like there was you know and so i didn't get a ticket or anything i just went to work um so that was my opium experience uh and and the white privilege that came with it let's see which one which one of my experiences will i tell i'm not gonna i don't have time to tell them all Uh i'll keep it short but i so back Many years ago, there, I don't know if this is still a thing or if it's still called this, but at least where we were back in the day, uh, if you took mushrooms, acid, and ecstasy at the same time, they called it Jedi flipping.
0: Which does not sound like something we should recommend.
1: No, I highly, highly discourage anybody from, <laughs> from doing this. Do not. <laughs> do not do this.
0: Don't do a Jedi
1: flip. Yeah. Uh, so but I did. Uh, and uh, I, I remember very little from this day, other than the I went through like multiple phases of where I thought I was. Um, at first, I was in the apartment in which we were all hanging out, uh, and that I lived in. And I was eventually I was in the rainforest somewhere, and then I was on the moon, and that was the last thing that I remember was being on the moon. Uh, and when I was on the moon, I was like, literally, like, I couldn't not, like, I was trying to not walk like I thought how people walked when they were on the moon, uh, but I couldn't not. So I was like, literally like walking around like this, like some kind of freak show. You can't see me, but I'm like walking around with my arms floating in the air, like move my arms around and like high stepping, super slow. And, like everything was like in sl- was in slow motion. Um, and naturally when you have those that many different substances coursing through your body, eventually I blacked out and I woke up under a swing set like three and a half blocks from my house, which is the third time that, that had happened to me. Same swing set.
2: Why did you keep going to that swing set?
1: Good question. Like a moth to a flame. Yeah. Uh apparently uh drugged up Rory really, really liked that pile of dirt underneath <laughs> that swing set, because that's where I ended up. And or that's where my friends at the time just left me.
0: I like to imagine that you went that entire three and a half blocks moonwalking the whole way.
1: I probably did. <laughs> uh, I'd, I almost guarantee that I did. Um, actually, you know what? I do have another uh, interesting story that can show how sus- that is showing how susceptible people can be to suggestion underneath these kind of drugs. Now, I wasn't on... Any of these drugs specifically, I had taken and cough, and cold back when it still had the drug in it that lets you trip. I don't re- remember what drug that is. Robitussin. No, it's, it's a similar effect to robitussin, but different drug. Um, but same kind of effect uh, that tussin, because I wasn't robo-tripping, I had done triple C's, and cough, and cold, pill form, and I took 32 of them.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, for perspective, that's a whole pack, of course, cough, and cold. And most people the trip would take 16-ish. I took 32 and with the intention of taking an additional 16 after a couple hours. Um, I had a problem. Uh, but when I was under that, it, what it felt like to me was that I was dreaming while awake because I could feel my eyes shaking as if I was in REM.
0: That's... Kind of fascinating.
1: Yeah. Uh, And uh, I had a lot of really similar effects uh, to the times of when I was on acid. Uh, But there was one specific instance, this one, when I had taken the 32 eating cough and cold all at one time, that I was very, I noticed that I was very suggestible. And somebody that was there was, uh, was very concerned about me because... I had taken 32 core seed in cough and cold. So, you know, naturally there's concern to be had. Um, But they said that, like, they would feed me water or whatever, trying to keep me hydrated. And they said that I was going to throw up. And I looked at them dead in the face and I said, I'm not going to. And then I threw up. (laughs) Like, I, there was no part of me that felt like I was going to throw up prior to that. They said it, and then I threw up. And pretty much the rest of the night was like that. People said things were going to happen, and then my body responded by having it happen. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I've taken a lot of psychedelic
0: but it does sound, it sounds like often the set and setting was i want to get fucked up no, Yeah, every,
1: every time not i'm
0: seeking emotional catharsis or mm-hmm. i want to explore my ego or anything no, like that no that
1: was never my intention back then the only thing that i was interested in then was getting fucked up because i was an i was an addict like i may not have had one specific drug that i was addicted to but i was but i would make the argument of vicodin but um I was addicted to being high at the time. You know, I just needed to not be in my own mental capacities for whatever reason. So getting fucked up was just what I did. But yeah, no, that was my set and setting was I just wanted to be fucked up.
2: Uh, in terms of like the main discussion question, um, this will sound like a cop out, but I, I genuinely don't know. If this is us connecting with a transcendental reality, or if this is just uh if the, or if this is just a very common hallucination for people to have while on d m t or similar psychedelics, and the reason I don't know is just the human brain is literally capable of so much, like the fact that you know with mass hysteria, you can literally force your body with just your own paranoia to start producing symptoms of diseases you do not have. Or the fact that with placebos, you can... Fun fact, um, there's a certain percentage of people where even if they are told the drug is a placebo, it will still work. Like, it will still produce the placebo effect even if they know it's a placebo. There's just this weird thing where, like, our brain is just like, you gave me a pill. I'm better now. But it was literally sugar. Uh, you gave me a pill. <laughs> I'm better now. Um. So, because some of the stories in here are incredibly or are incredibly compelling, like the entire the entire discussion around uh, the ayahuasca experiences in the Amazon jungle and the fact that they created an entire religion out of ayahuasca trips. And UFOs are part of that, and I am so- t-
0: we're, we're so getting there.
2: I am so tired of opening up every fucking book and finding goddamn UFOs. I know, right? <laughs> I, I, am I was so, stunned. So fucking tired of aliens, Nick. I, I, I am tired of aliens. So
0: we are totally jumping ahead, but I have to say, when I was reading the book, that startled me as well, because I was not expecting it. And when I got to that point, I put the book down and I had a good laugh to myself. Not because of the content or my own reaction to it, but because imagining Jay's reaction upon finding that in the book. It's like you're being stalked by a concept.
2: I am a little bit. (laughs) They can't take me in that flying saucer again. I failed the temperament test so hard. I bit one of them. (laughs) I'm guessing.
0: I'm, I'm just saying, if you actually had a near-abduction experience where you bit an alien and you wait to tell us on this show, (laughs) I'm legit going to be mad.
2: No, I would not have waited this long. I would have come back into the house and proudly showed you the green skin stuck between my teeth. You're an animal. Yes, I am. Um, But here's the thing is, even if these journeys are completely self-generated, even if they are coming just from the drug interacting with our brain... I don't think that makes them any less significant. And as we talked about many times on the show, our definition of real gets shakier and shakier the further we delve into studying the phenomenon and its related facets. So even if this even if these things are coming solely from inside of us, um, much like Timberman, I'm like, okay, that actually is just as significant. And is telling us something just as important than it would be if it was an external transcendental reality that we can only access through DMT. Um, Basically, at that point, it's like, okay, what structure in our brain is producing these hyper-consistent hallucinations? What genetic memory are we tapping into of basically... Basically, it reveals something so fascinating about humans that I I don't think it's any less significant, even if it is completely self generated. But again, at this point, I I genuinely don't know to the point where I don't I don't feel comfortable even expressing an opinion because I almost don't have one because it's also that thing of you know we've we've talked about in the inward journey of if you dig far enough inside of us, uh, you'd probably just come back out into the universe. Um, And as for psychedelic experiences, the closest I had to that was um, that time that I was really desperate to go to sleep uh, because I hadn't slept in like three days. Uh, This was when my insomnia was way worse. And I ended up trying to uh, prevent an anxiety attack so I could go to sleep by mixing a bunch of Benadryl. I think I took like six 20 milligram Benadryl tablets and then my anti-anxiety meds. And um, I was laying in bed and uh, Rory was asleep next to me and you and you and your wife were asleep across the hall. And I'm staring up at the ceiling and I'm just like, hey, those shadows look like hands. Those hands are moving a lot. What am I hearing? And like I I figured out very quickly that what I was hearing was a hallucination because it didn't change in volume with or without my earplugs in. And I was like, what the hell am I hearing? And I tried to, like, tune in closer. And I'm like, that's an old man on a very old-timey radio. And he's talking about the World Series. Hmm. Hmm. The Red Red Sox are not doing well. Hmm. And uh, then I was like, I should probably call Poison Control. And I tried to get out of bed, and my legs collapsed out from under me. And I was just lying on the ground next to the bed. And I was like, well, this is less than ideal. And then holding my phone in my teeth, I crawled to the bathroom so I wouldn't disturb Rory while calling poison control. And uh, while I was sitting in the bathroom on the phone with poison control and saying over and over again, no, I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was just tired. And um, and as I'm staring at them, they're like, well, what's going on? And I'm like, well, I've begun hallucinating the largest black widow spider I've ever seen in my life. And it's a creating a very intricate web next to my toilet. And I'm like, wait, let me, let me make sure that this is actually real. And I pulled up my phone camera and I looked through it and I'm like, yep, it's fake. It's not showing up on my camera screen.
0: Which is an ingenious way of seeing if a hallucination is real or not.
2: Yep. Um, I learned that tip from a person that frequently had visual hallucinations and around Halloween they would sometimes get confused about if, we, if what they were seeing was a visual hallucination or a Halloween decoration. And they were the one who told me about like, yeah, hallucinations don't show up on digital, through digital cameras. So like, bas- they were basically like, yeah, just take a picture. If it's there, it's something solid and real. And if it doesn't show up on the camera, it's a hallucination.
0: Fascinating.
1: It doesn't show up until it does
2: hey in which case run
0: <laughs> uh so i i guess to answer my own question um i am going to also take a cop-out answer but not quite the same one i so going into this i much like you jay i didn't have an opinion on this question i uh i knew that psychedelics you know i most of my most of my knowledge about psychedelics came from rory and uh, knowing rory during that period of time
1: yep um, so there wasn't good. Knowledge. No, it wasn't good knowledge at all. It was actually terrifying.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but beyond that, I, I kind of avoided it for, because of those experiences with Rory. Uh, and I, I always had in the back of my head, you know, once I'm like 75, once I'm sure my brain is more rot than good, then I'm going to do all the psychedelics in the world. And I still have that plan. I'm still going to do it. Um, but I, I didn't have really this conception that there what that they might be tapping into some other world until I started reading about the DMT machine elves, and even then my thought process on it didn't go much further than wow that's weird, um, so yeah no I think that what this book did is it it very well laid out the various uh ways that you can look at this topic, and we're gonna get to this later but I personally if I had to pick uh one interpretation of it i'm going to go with the total cop out of both in that the fact that the drug is messing with our brain is more the answer to how, uh is more the answer to how uh, how these visions are occurring but not getting at what the the actual content of the vision is i think it's possible that the chemical of the drug could be triggering some innate mechanisms that we have that are typically reached through things like Years of meditation, magic ritual, uh, you know, focused will—these things that you know you are supposed to take decades of your life to refine the ability to enter into that state on your own—it's uh, kind of like a shortcut. Um, and that's—I mean, that I—I I, again, I don't know, but that is my—that is the closest I've come to, I guess, a uh, a hypothesis I'm willing to stand by. Regarding my own experiences, they are few. Uh, I. Did hallucinate once when I decided to see how long I could stay awake, and I got to around five days, um, and the shadows started jumping at me out of the corner of my eyes, and then I went to bed. Uh, <laughs> the other incident was, obviously, I, I know I've talked about this on the show, uh, when I was in, in the intensive care unit after the car accident when I was 18, uh, because I was hopped up on a metric ton of drugs, And I was in shock and I hadn't slept in days because, uh, no, they never really turned the lights off in the ICU. And I was in the neurology ICU. So I was surrounded by people strapped to their beds saying terrifying things. Uh, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't sleep. And that experience is still really tough for me to piece together. I get snapshots of things that I know I saw and obviously based off in you know in more a uh, in the current context looking back on it i could see that those were very very likely hallucinations because hey um mylar balloons don't suddenly come to life and start eating people normally uh <laughs> uh as similarly there's not a giant pale faced uh the thing in a a thing that peers in through the doorway a few every a couple times an hour checking in on you uh i really hope not its eyes were terrifying uh they look like rotten apples sitting inside hollow sockets yep Mm. that's death uh but yeah no well that's that's not comforting at all uh so yeah i think that's as far as i got i've never had a real like psychedelic experience um that's not to say I'm close to it, but like I said, I think that's something that is further off on the horizon for me. When, I, when I'm 70, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get so weird. I'm going to try everything.
2: My dad also had a, had a balloon hallucination when he was in the hospital that one time. He was, uh, uh, me and my sister brought him a smiley face balloon, and um, he watched it transform. He, he mistook the balloon for our dog, Baxter. And he thought Baxter had become a disembodied head. And he was very, very distraught. And apparently he was crying and yelling, who did this to you? Don't worry, buddy. We're going to get you your body back. <laughs> it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. But remember, this was a big smiley face balloon. And he's like, after a while, I calm down because it's like, oh, he seems happy. And, uh. And then a few hours later, he was like, wait a minute.
1: Wait a second.
2: That's not my golden retriever. Another time he hallucinated uh, binge eating an entire box of Nilla wafers uh, two hours before he was supposed to have a follow up surgery. And he called the head nurse in a panic. And he was like, no, you gotta you gotta cancel it. I ate Nilla wafers. And she's like, sir, there has not been food in your room all day. He's like, you don't understand. The box appeared and I ate them all before I could stop myself. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Sir, there's been no Nilla wafers here. Can
0: you imagine if they walked in there and though there was Nilla, like nilla wafer crumbs everywhere, just psychically manifested cookies out of a desperate need?
2: Sir, now we have to reschedule your surgery. Stop using alchemy to conjure <laughs> cheap cookies.
0: Alchemy cookies.
1: Now we come are into a store so near
2: you. tired of this. Who keeps giving the Necronomicon to the ICU patients? <laughs>
1: I did think of another story, though, one time when I was on Mushrooms, um, and we had watched Pan's Labyrinth while on Mushrooms. Oh, yeah. I love this story.
2: Why would you do that?
1: I don't know. I hated myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this was, like, at first, when I, uh, when, at first, when we first take, uh, ate the mushrooms or whatever, I just got the leg buzz that you get, where it just kind of your legs feel all kind of tingly and great, and everything feels wonderful, and the colors are so good. Um, And then after we watched *Pan's Labyrinth*, we went for a walk in the woods, which is where the mistake began, Uh, because I spent the entire time walking through the woods thinking that we were being followed by a giant tree man, Um, and we might have been for all I for all I'm uh, for all I know. But the the whole night ended with me sprinting away from the forest because, again, giant tree man um, falling face first into the street and uh, the street in a puddle and then under my car. And then I slept there. God, I sleep underneath stuff a lot.
2: You slept under your car?
1: Yeah, it was a truck.
2: Your friends left you under your car?
1: They did that a lot. On that said note, are we ready for part two? Uh
2: can you i i like to go on swings for my to relieve my light writer's block can you imagine if that was how we met like you got woken up at like 10 in the morning by just this fucking twink nudging you with his shoe <laughs> just being like you're under my swing
1: i probably wouldn't even know how to talk like the one the worst blackout that i had where i woke up where i well i didn't wake up under the swing this time but i know that I was under the swing at one point because that was the last thing I remember was crawling underneath the swing. Uh, but I woke up in my bed 36 hours later.
2: What transpired in those 36 hours?
1: I assume I slept, mostly, because I, that was bad. That was a bad day. There was no psychedelics involved. I had taken, I drank a fifth of Captain. I took two Zany bars. um, And... Was it two Z bars, Vicodin, 1000 milligram Vicodin, and something else? I think subconsciously, I was just trying to fade out forever subconsciously, but that didn't happen, obviously. 36 hours later, I was fine. Thank God
0: that didn't happen.
1: Yeah. That happened a lot. I blacked out a lot. I did a lot of drugs. It's probably why I'm so spacey now. PART TWO, THE MEDICAL APPROACH One who
0: pays any sort of attention to psychedelic news over the past few years will note the increasing acceptance of using psychedelic compounds to treat mental illness. The study of these therapeutic applications is not new. In fact, up until the 1950s, research into psychedelia was well underway and showing promising results in treating or even curing our most persistent mental maladies. However, the classification of these drugs as dangerous, and hence illegal, made further research impossible until relatively recently. LSD, for example, has been found to be an effective cure for alcoholism or anxiety disorders with as little as a single dose. DMT trips have been associated with greatly diminishing or even curing treatment-resistant depression, while MDMA shows promising results in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. However, before we continue, it is important that we stress that these results were not obtained by going on a groovy cosmic voyage in the backseat of your friend's Nissan or underneath your truck. Rather, these drugs are administered clinically with trained professionals who can help guide the patient through the visionary experience to achieve emotional
1: catharsis. Does MDMA count as a psychedelic?
0: Uh, Apparently so. It came up in a lot of the, the research I did on the side.
1: Huh. I have a lot more stories, then.
0: (laughs) Chapter 5 of this book, Ineffability and Revelation on the Frontiers of Knowledge by Dr. William Richards, explores this topic through the lens of his research into psilocybin, the active chemical in magic mushrooms, which has proven effective in greatly easing the stresses and anxiety experienced by patients in hospice care, a topic which he has studied with great persistence for the last 54 years. While Richards is obviously highly focused on the clinical value of psychedelics, that isn't to say he hasn't noticed the more transcendent or spiritual dimensions of these compounds. In fact, he believes that those elements of the experience may be why they are so effective in treating psychological disorders. To explore this possibility, he invited several religious professionals from various world religions to come to his lab and ingest two high doses of psilocybin. After their experience, Most of the participants found that their faith had been strengthened by the experience and felt that the trip was innately spiritual in nature. And among his patients, he noted that those who showed the strongest results interpreted their experience in expressly spiritual terms. Quote, What is often so striking about these visionary encounters is not their vivid, colorful, multidimensional intensity and sometimes exquisite beauty, but also the stark feeling of reality that accompanies them. People speak of beholding such visions, not merely looking at them like illustrations in a book or feeling images in a typical nocturnal dream. However, as mentioned earlier, one cannot just pop a mushroom cap and expect their depression to magically fade away or to have a chat with their deity of choice. Rather, his research has shown that setting and intention matter greatly in determining the outcome of the psychedelic experience. If one enters into a trip in an already anxious or fearful state, they are more likely to encounter anxiety-inducing, fearful visions. The proper mindset for psychological healing, he has found, is one of open acceptance. Quote, Intention thus entails welcoming, accepting, meeting, diving into whatever content presents itself without ego defense, above all, without intellectualization. Thus, patients are encouraged not merely to observe and report back, but to participate in the visions they perceive, to interrogate them, question them, and above all, play with them. If one does so, his findings show that the trip is very seldom negative in nature. Even the sometimes dreaded ego death, which puts off many would-be psychonauts, is better described as a choice made during the trip. Often his patients reported a moment in which they were given a chance to become something else. The specific manifestations varied greatly, but the overall theme was that transcending one's own ego is something that can only be done with eyes wide open, a decision which is best made with the support of a tripsitter who guides the traveler through the process, hence rendering it safe from a psychological point of view. It is only after that choice is made that the most powerful healing effects occur, because it is there that we may encounter that ever-elusive sense of oneness with the Godhead, or with reality, a reality which, he has noted, seems to present the voyager with a meticulously scripted encounter that aligns with their base intention. Quote, As those of us who have witnessed our own psychedelic voyages or those of others know well, the content encountered often tends to be intrinsically well-designed, reflecting that meaningful unfolding from within that philosophers call entelechy. We are not dealing with some drug effect that is capricious, random, and unpredictable. Rather, there is wisdom and intelligence at work, often awesomely beautiful and personally poignant, even if sometimes bewildering to our familiar conceptual processes. It is these combination of factors, he suggests, that may be why many cultures refer to entheogenic plants as teachers, hinting at the experience of some greater intelligence or design. But you may ask, what about his patients? What good did the psilocybin treatments do other than potentially giving them a one-on-one with the universe? Among hospice and end-of-life patients he tested, nearly all returned from their trip transformed. Their anxiety over their impending death had eased, and many reported a total loss of all fear of death. They returned feeling more at home in the universe, and expressed sentiments that regardless of the evils we perceive in the world, everything ultimately will be okay. They returned ready to live for however much time they have left, and to enjoy that time as fully as possible. From a purely clinical perspective, these experiences help the patient to step beyond the boundaries of their normal human life and hence gain a new frame of reference through which to view it in its totality. And from a spiritual perspective, many return bearing remarkably similar messages gleaned during their travels. One is that love is the core power of the universe, though not the sort of love sold on Hallmark greeting cards, but something older and intelligent and powerful. What love is and how we express it for the self and the world, they often explain, is the core of the mortal journey. Dr. Richards hopes that his research will help pave the way towards a future in which psilocybin and other psychedelic compounds such as DMT are destigmatized and can be used to their full effect in addressing some of the most widespread mental health issues of the day. In this, he advises his fellow researchers to speak plainly about the compounds in terms of their clinical value rather than any transcendental notions that may put off those who've never taken the trip. Advice which the speakers in our next section ignored wholesale. But before we get there, we have our second discussion question. So, regarding the stigmatization of psychedelics and medical research, one suggestion that I've often seen made by the masses of the internet Is that they were outlawed specifically to prevent people from using them and waking up to the larger reality beyond the eat, sleep, work, spend hell loop in which we live? Now, while I'm not suggesting that's true, why do you think we've been so slow to investigate the clinical value of these compounds given what was already known about them, known about their use in indigenous cultures as healers or teachers? And if given the opportunity, would you try psychedelic therapy? Why or why not?
2: So. I think that question has a lot of parts to its answer. The first one is, it was not until about two years ago that anyone in Western medicine, politics, or general science was capable of giving even half of a shit about what indigenous people knew. Um, Like the fact that, you know, do you know the entire reason why California has so many fucking wildfires? It's not just because of global warming. It's because when white people moved in, uh, they stopped letting the tribes that lived out there do the um, controlled burns that they used to do before colonization. And the problem has gotten so bad that the last I checked, the California uh, State Department has actually started contacting sovereign tribal leaders and was like, um, so that controlled burn thingy Um, do you want to start doing that again? Because people keep dying and also property values are like tanking.
0: Che, I want you to know that because of you, the default voice I have in my head for any government bureaucrat is now that, is that high-pitched squealy voice.
2: Good. That's what they all sound like in their soul.
0: It makes the State of the Union wildly entertaining.
2: Um. So here's the thing about the gross domestic product. It's bad. (laughs) It's bad. Um. So basically, for a long time, it didn't matter what indigenous what indigenous knowledge was telling us about psychedelics. Nobody cared. There was, there was an assumption that these were primitive backwards people and they didn't understand their own lands or the plants that grew on them and that there was nothing of value to be gained from talking to them about it. Um, I, the, the other thing is, uh, I, I legitimately believe that the backlash to the hippie movement may have contributed very strongly to the ongoing stigma against psychedelics in in Western medicine of it's of uh, you know even you 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 took the time in your summary to draw to delineate between you know getting high in somebody's basement because you can't cope with the fact that you're in high school and you know my,
1: my old life
2: <laughs> and you know taking a supervised clinical dose with a therapist who's like, all right. Let's talk about what happened in the third grade. We're going to go through it step by step. Uh, but people don't like to think about it with that much nuance. They just hear psychedelics, and they remember their great-uncle Scott, who took the brown acid at Woodstock and now lives in a uh, cardboard box in a dumpster and uh, chases raccoons with a butterfly net.
1: <laughs>
2: um, And it's... And I think the third part of that answer is, and I can't go into this aspect, I am assuming that there is either a perceived or measurable difference in the monetary value of psychedelic research versus more traditional um, research.
0: I mean, that's possible, especially if some of the most wild claims that we've been seeing about their efficacy prove true. Okay, well, if we have something where if you could go into a, go into a building and have a trip and walk out with your clinical depression gone, period, gone, up, for upwards of six months, if not cured entirely, well, then you don't need to be taking SSRIs, you know, every day, month after month after month, I, which I imagine would be a cash cow for pharmaceutical companies.
2: Um, there's also the also there's the thing that we recently uh, talked about with Dean Radin about, um, you know, there's federal regulations that make it very difficult to do research into psychedelics because much like it was much like until recently, Western scientists didn't give a shit what the indigenous people of the Americas were telling them about these plants and their values it's really, really hard to get the drug enforcement agency to listen to fucking doctors. And if the dr- and if it's illegal at a federal level, it's very difficult and a giant pain in the ass to get the clearance to actually do those tests. And especially if you're a lab with federal funding, they just don't want to do that for completely understandable reasons. Yeah,
1: the second that there's federal funding involved, it doesn't matter. They're just going to say no.
2: Yep. Uh, and as for, of, I, I would absolutely try psychedelic therapy. You want to know why? Nothing else is getting me there.
0: That's a completely fair answer. Mm-hmm.
2: I've been going to therapy since I was eight. People, I still have PTSD.
1: So I think one of the reasons why the research has been stigmatized is because of those that were big proponents of it prior. So what I mean by that is because it was indigenous cultures that said that these things were useful and great, they were shrugged off and they were said, no, this is some shamanistic bullshit. There's no real evidence to it and I don't care to look into it. I think that, I I guarantee that for years and years that was part of it because unfortunately, we white folk are innately racist, apparently. Um, or at least our the you know, our past folk were, you know, with all the genocide and shit.
0: Uh I don't think we're that far
1: off. Yeah. No, I I, I I don't either. Now I I don't think the masses of the internet are right. I don't think it has anything to do with uh the with people trying to cover up the larger reality beyond the hell loop that we live in because that would imply that they had done it themselves or understood that that was a possibility and they didn't because of racism. Uh, I, 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 all, I promise that there is a large swaths of that uh, as a reasoning because they don't look past that. They don't look past the, where, where it came from. They see that Native Americans were using, were using peyote as spirit qu- uh, for spirit quests and then it becomes a meme. You know, it's it's an actual uh, stereotype because of that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember growing up as a kid, Star Trek Voyager had a native was uh, probably to Chakotay was, I think, the first Native American character I saw in a television show. And every single personal plot he got was a spirit quest. Yep, He went on like eight spirit quests over the
1: course of that goddamn show. Yep. That's horrible. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I think that I think that that is unfortunately a big part of it. Otherwise, I kind of just agree with what Jay was saying. As my, you know, as much as uh, as much of a cop out answer as that is. But on the other side, if given the opportunity, would I try psychedelic therapy? Um, I don't know. Probably. I say probably because my gut Instinct says, yes, absolutely, which means I got to check it.
0: And that's fair, especially given your history.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly it. I got to check that motivation to make sure that it's the right one and not just me wanting to get fucked up. Because that, that part's still with me. I mean, I get high a lot, uh, you know, smoking weed. So, I mean, ultimately, I think if, because it would be introduced via a therapeutic setting, I think I'd be fine, ultimately.
0: Yeah I think I uh, feel very similar. I uh, I the fact that we would ha- you would have a trip sitter there that it's this controlled safe environment. I to reference the stories you were telling earlier, I know I'm not going to wake up under a swing set. Uh and that is appealing to me. I there are uh, some things that I am still struggling with personally. Uh I I I've never been diagnosed with it, but I have flashbacks about the car accident sometimes especially if I'm ever riding in a van or something like that. I'll I'll like when I close my eyes, I get a flash of the van rolling, um, which I've been told isn't mentally great. <laughs>
2: the anxiety that you express when there is a car accident on TV or in a movie that resembles the car accident you were in is uh, noticeable and clinically significant in my professional opinion.
0: Noted. Uh, but beyond that, though, to answer the the first question, I think Jay was right on the money with a lot of that. um. I do kind of going beyond just simple racism, I also wonder how much religiosity plays into it when you have the the pagan fear uh, or sorry the Christian fear of the pagan outsider
1: yeah, no absolutely uh, you
0: know we, we come in we have well we are you know we're a a Christian scientific nation, we're progressive and forward thinking what is that witchcraft coming out of the depths of the unknown amazon i I think that that definitely plays a factor, uh and like Jay was saying, I think the way it was adopted, psychedelics were adopted by the hippie movement, mm-hmm. uh, definitely didn't help. Especially because, yeah. quite frankly, how they, it was often used uh, in like the Summer of Love and the hippie movement was very irresponsible. It ruined lives. It, it, people yes. are still ruined from it.
2: It was considered completely socially acceptable to dose people with LSD without their consent. There was a serious problem at Woodstock with people just with people going up to other groups and asking if they could have water and uh, people handing them water bottles laced with acid and not telling them. You
0: know, it's funny. It's hilarious to me that at two completely different sides of the culture war in that period of time. We had people doing the same thing, because at Woodstock we have that happening, and then in the CIA, we had MKUltra happening, where they were dosing each other in their office with LSD just for laughs.
2: I'm starting to think the 60s and 70s were just a bad time to be alive, and everyone should have stayed inside. There
0: was a lot of lead in the air. That's
2: that's, that's a good point. There was still lead in the gasoline.
0: Everyone was on lead and LSD. Lead SD. L- watching watching rory's face melt as they died inside was worth that bad joke (laughs) yeah
1: all right fine
0: uh but yeah no i have we beaten that one to death are we ready for part three
2: would you try psychedelic therapy
0: oh yeah no i think i i said i would uh okay yeah no i i would i would it would have to be uh a doctor i trust like i wouldn't I wouldn't walk down an alley into a clinic that I've never been to before because I saw a sign out front saying, you know, LSD trials. Uh, But if it was something where, you know, they have a reputation, I can go and see the testimonials of other people who've worked with them and they seem to be professional, I'd absolutely do it. I think that that would be a novel experience that I very much would like to have one day in a safe, controlled way. Okay. Ready for part three? Mm -hmm. Yes. Part 3. The Cultural Approach While the discovery of both LSD and synthetic DMT is relatively new, comparatively speaking, the psychedelic experience, including those with natural forms of DMT, is far older. In fact, the ingestion of DMT through the vine known as ayahuasca, among other plants, was and remains a key feature in the religion, art, and culture of many South American tribes. Speaker Dr. Elise Eduardo Luna is no stranger to these traditions. Hailing from Florencia in the Colombian Amazon, he grew up in a culture steeped in a visionary tradition, one which used powerful, naturally occurring psychedelics to bring shamans into direct communion with the world of spirits, a world inhabited by archetypal entities representing key features of nature. Quote, In the Amazon, they have this belief that every species has a master spirit. They have a master of animals, master of fish, master of different plants. And so the shaman is dealing with these entities, with these masters of plants. Not the individual plant, but the spirit of the whole plant species. For instance, among the Achar, Nunqui is the mother of all cultivated plants. You find this idea everywhere in the Amazon. When talking about these traditions, it is important to understand that the shaman journeys into the psychedelic realm not merely to speak with these spirits, but to become them. Just as a person may wear different clothing, the shaman can, while in the psychedelic state, transform himself into animals or plants in order to commune with the basal concept or spirit it represents. Quote, To know is to personify, to take the point of view of that which is to be known, or rather, who, for shamanic knowledge, evisages something that is someone, another subject or agent the other takes the form of a person so i think that one of the basic ideas of shamanism is in order to learn something you become what you want to learn from so knowledge is becoming transforming into the fruits of these journeys then go on to inform and shape most of the arts and culture of these tribes which draw heavily on the symbolism of these visionary experiences for example among the shapibo tribe it is believed that the spirits sing special songs which the shaman then repeats in the presence of others, who then somehow translate that sound into patterns which appear in their art, in a sense capturing the spirit's essence within a form that is recognizable outside of the visionary experience. In this way, DMT, or more specifically the plants from which it is derived, is seen within these cultures as a teacher, one who is capable of aiding the shaman in translating transcendent reality into material form. In the course of his research, Luna came to know an artist named Pablo Amaringo, who provides us with another example of this trend by taking ayahuasca journeys and then directly translating his experiences into vivid paintings. Paintings which, when shown to members of other tribes who partake in DMT traditions, were immediately recognized as accurate depictions of the spirit world. Luna was gifted one such painting and, because I can't not share this detail, immediately noted an odd inclusion objects that appeared to be flying saucers.
2: God damn it.
0: In subsequent research, he discovered that such objects are not only common in ayahuasca journeys, but are in fact named entities within the cosmology of several tribes. Quote, In one of his paintings, he depicted the Satchamama, the great mother serpent of the forest, and the Yakumana, which is the serpent of the water. The Yakumana may take the shape of a boat, and the boat comes along with all these spirits. These ideas are found among many indigenous tribes, such as the Witoto, as well as the Mestizo Vegetalista tradition. But then Pablo also included the Waramama, the great snake mother of the air, of which I was not aware. Suddenly, I realized that in this tradition, the Waramama can transform into these kind of UFO-like objects. But Pablo always said that they are not machines, they are spirits. They come from other places, they take this shape, but they are really spirits. Beyond the denizens of these realms, the ayahuasca spirit world is also filled with its own interior landscape, including cities and towns. Cities which, according to the shamans and frequent psychonauts such as Luna, who to date has ingested natural forms of DMT over a thousand times, often has a consistent layout over subsequent trips. The cities often feature strange or hyper-advanced technology, and often contain within them entities or objects of a decidedly mythic nature, such as mermaids. And, much like in the fairy lore of Europe, the entities there are very welcoming, but one must be wary of their generosity. It is commonly understood that one must reject all offered food and drink, as to ingest any would doom the Psychonaut to remaining in the spirit world forever. He further notes that, as he found, initially these interactions are terrifying, It is only once the shaman has come to understand and accept the entity's strange or frightful appearances, and learns to see the world through their eyes, that they can begin productive dialogue, a description which I noted would not be out of place in any of the works of Whitley Strieber, in which he had to come to terms with his innate fear of the others before he could enter into a more loving communion with them. And these elements have much in common with another mystic tradition one that comes from the other side of the world and emerged without the aid of psychedelic plant teachers, as far as we know. In What is the Daemon, speaker Angela Voss explores Neoplatonic ideas which seem to bear an uncanny resemblance to the South American vision of the spirit world. Within Neoplatonism, it is understood that reality is composed of a hierarchy of layers, emanating from a core source being God, the one, the mind, or whatever word you prefer to attach to that ineffable other. And it was understood that each of these levels are populated by entities. Those that exist closest to source were akin to gods themselves, and lacked form. Those towards the bottom were those of us who mostly inhabit physical form. The middle ground was the domain of entities known as daemons a term later converted to demons by the church when attempting to brand Neoplatonic ideas as evil and heretical. These daemons could take on various forms, and were understood to be half-material and half-immaterial, as their purpose was to mediate between material beings and the divine. The daemons were organized from high to low based off their proximity to the godhead. When these entities were invoked, most often with the goal of growing one's own soul or connection to source, It was thought that the entity who came was one that corresponded with the state of your soul. Quote, There is a kind of understanding, which for Plato is the highest part of the soul, that is deeply intuitive. The highest part of the soul would resonate with these higher, fiery, or ethereal and airy daemons. The middle area of the soul, which was termed the reason, would resonate with the unethereal airy daemons. And the lower part, concerned with imagination, images, and sense perception, would resonate with the vaporous or smoky air daemons that inhabited that level. Only once one had, through the help of a daemon, evolved their spiritual self, could they then commune with the daemons of the next level, and so on. This idea is core to Neoplatonic beliefs. You can only enter into a dimension or level of reality with which your soul is already in tune, much like how the ayahuasca shaman can only commune with a spirit after becoming said spirit. You can't just summon a god, you need to first evolve yourself to a state where you can even conceive of what a god truly is. Knowledge which goes beyond what Gary Lockman would call the left brain analytical mode of knowing, and goes into the right brain intuitive sense of knowing. An understanding that, much like many ayahuasca trips, cannot be verbalized in words, but must be expressed in art, music, and other expressions of the soul which give form to a force that is fundamentally ineffable. In this light, the daemons and their world of spirits are meant to be understood as metaphoric placeholders, for we lack the linguistic or even cognitive capacities to understand them in their actuality. A concept also familiar to Sufi mysticism, where an old adage goes, quote, No one can have true knowledge unless he knows things through his own essence. Which, Voss suggests, is an idea that reveals one of the core issues with the Western scientific worldview, with its insistence on strict objectivity. Like how the world of daemons or the ayahuasca spirit world can only be viewed on the subjective, symbolic level, so too does she argue that our everyday reality is perceived in much the same way. One cannot get behind the subjective experience, or step beyond it. In that light, debating the ontological reality of any entity, be they encountered on the psychedelic trip or in the cold light of day, is ultimately a useless endeavor. If they are real within your subjective experience, then they are real. The scientific worldview, she argues, must expand to encompass this facet of reality, as by ignoring it in favor of illusionary objectivity, we are in effect cutting ourselves off from what seems to be a core facet of our existence. But we should be careful to remember that both objective reality and subjective reality are ultimately only one half of the total picture. In objective reality, a house collapses due to termite damage. In the subjective reality of the neighbors, the house collapsed because the family who lived there angered the gods. We are to understand that both can be true, with objective reality speaking to the how and subjective reality speaking to the why. The goal, which is perhaps the same goal shared by demonic channelers and ayahuasca shamans, is to find a middle ground between these worldviews, one in which we can acknowledge objective reality I took a drug that made me see trippy visions, and subjective reality I went on a spiritual journey and communed with ancient gods, as both expressing equal portions of a united truth. Which brings us to our third discussion question. So, in these sections, I was quite taken by the idea that the other world or spirit world is only to be understood at the metaphorical interpretive level. Extending beyond psychedelic entity encounters to those found within the UFO, cryptid, and ghost encounters, could the same be happening there? And if so, what metaphoric meaning could you ascribe to the sightings of anomalous phenomena that occur without the aid of psychedelics?
1: Hmm. This is a good question.
0: I know, that's why I wrote it.
1: Yeah. Very thought-provoking. You know, I I took a whole bunch of notes and wrote my thoughts down at work today. Yeah. And then I left my work laptop at work. (laughs) Oh, no! So all my thoughts are at work. But that's okay. I still got them in my brain somewhere. So, yes, I suppose.
0: I mean, yeah, anytime you say, could this be true? Yeah, could be.
1: So, assuming assuming that, that it is theoretically, that this is potentially true, what metaphoric meaning could I ascribe to the sightings of anomalous phenomenon? I think that would depend on what it is. So if I'm seeing a ghost, what is the ghost of? What can this ghost potentially symbolize or be symbolic for to me individually? Um is this related to is this related to me in some way? If it is, then what? The ones that I would struggle to say that there would be metaphoric meaning there is if I see a ghost of somebody who was of that area, that building before it has no connection to me. I'm going to struggle. I've struggled to see what that metaphorical meaning could be. Um, but if I have, a, you know, uh, if I'm okay for me, for example, if I see my grandma, maybe the metaphorical meaning there is that I have some un- Resolved issues there that I that I should probably address because now you know because I'm seeing her around me or maybe that it's that it's some meaning that she's there around protecting me still, you know something I guess supposedly kind of obvious answers, but nonetheless that could be what it is. I don't think that, but it could be. Um. For cryptids, I think this could, be in, this could be something interesting there when looked through the lens that we talked about during Joshua Cutchin's book about the idea of the wild man because the wild man has its own m- meanings that could be attributed there. Um, I guess looking at it from that lens, maybe each one of these is its own archety- archetype that we could look at through the lens of like tarot
0: yeah, sure. I mean I I mean Tarot or uh, Campbellian mythic archetypes, whatever system you want to prescribe to it.
1: Yeah, uh, ultimately a lot of them come down to almost the same meaning for the same uh archetypes. Weird. <laughs> um but I I think that that is I guess a possibility. So the idea that this like the spirit world or whatever, is understood merely at a metaphorical or interpretive level. This made me think about um, the other world in Druidry, of course.
0: Right. I mean, that, that's your cultural framework you're going to apply to everything.
1: Yeah. So, um, But I, I thought this was interesting because in a lot of Druid studies, they do look at the other world as a more metaphorical thing. Not, at, not all of them, not in the ones that I'm studying underneath, but in other things that I've read, they look at it as more of a um, uh, a place to take lessons from, but not necessarily a place that, that exists currently, right? So I think, that, I think that that is doable here with any of these things, because in context of whatever the scenario is, you can take any kind of meaning out. You could do that with anything. Uh, that's why it's so uh difficult when you start diving into these things to not see synchronicities and things everywhere because there may not be anything there. It's like trying to find the actual thread that you're supposed to to follow or pull on. Um, but I think if you're seeing any of these things, regardless of the reasoning, there's probably a message there, metaphorical, physical, not. There's probably something that that could be or needs to be examined within you. Uh, be it, I just saw a ghost and now I need to re- reassess my whole fucking life, or I just saw Bigfoot and now I know that shit might be real, or I might be going fucking crazy. There's probably something that needs to be analyzed regardless if you see or experience any of these things. But I think that there's a lot that, I, I think regardless, okay, this was my point. I, I think regardless of what you think about it all, whether or not it's metaphorical or real. I think that there's lessons that can be taken from any of this. Okay. If I see like, if, if, if I have any kind of experience, what it means to me and what I take out of it is exactly that it's what it means to me. Look at Whitley Strieber, for example, he started out having UFO experiences of very traditional, traditional in quotation uh, abduction style experience. And it turned into a very spiritual journey. Um, that only happens through that only happened, I believe, because of his own interpretation of these events that led him there. You know, his own studies and his own odd uh, journey that's that seeking there. If those same things happen to somebody else, they may not have had the same exact experience. So, your own personal view and interpretation of the events is definitely gonna happen you know or is definitely going to result in something regardless of whether or not you've had psychedelics
0: Well, i mean and that uh is pretty in line with something we talked about for american cosmic the idea that there is a difference between the actual event and the cultural interpretation you apply to it
1: yeah exactly the uh you know religious truth or whatever um But I, and I think, and that's probably a lot of where that idea is kind of stemming from in my brain is I, that was one of probably my biggest takeaway from uh, American Cosmic was the idea of regardless of, almost regardless of the physical truth of the event, uh, it became something the second that we applied UFO or religious interpretation or meaning to the event. You know, and I think that I think that a lot is the same here, regardless of psychedelic uh uh ingestion, yeah, there we go, regardless of whether or not i I took drugs, I think that there's something to be said about having these events or having these experiences, but I do think that there is still a chance because we don't know that none of this shit's real.
0: yeah, absolutely there's a chance that that's the case,
1: you know. So I don't know. I it was a long-winded uh, circled answer of "I didn't really say anything, and I apologize.
2: Um, I actually I kind of agree with Rory in that let, let's let's take my favorite, my personal favorite uh, aspect of the phenomenon of ghosts. Um, it, in stories, in in books and fiction, ghosts are laden with metaphor. Ghosts are trauma and they're memories and they're the past that won't die. They're the unresolved business. and But here's the thing about metaphor, and this is part of why dream interpretation as part of psychology is so uh, difficult and not really popular anymore, is that the same symbol can mean wildly different things to different people, depending on as 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 Rory mentioned, their cultural context or their personal history or whatever. Because yeah, you know, my father's relationship to Catholic imagery is always going to be fundamentally different than my relationship to Catholic imagery. And neither one of us has a relationship to that imagery that in any way resembles my grandmother's relationship to it. So an angel appearing before all three of us can be the exact same angel, but it represents wildly different things to our personal psyche. And again, that's why I kind of brought up dream interpretation in psychology. you 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 can go to any... New age book, new age bookshop, and buy some little book that's gonna tell you what your dreams mean, and those those dream like the 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 teeth falling out nightmare. Uh very commonly people are like, oh, if your teeth are falling out, that means you feel out of control of your life. It's like, yeah, it means that for like sixty percent of the population, but for the remaining forty percent it 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 can mean the fucking anything or it can mean literally nothing at all fun fact people a lot of your dreams don't mean anything according to science it
0: just means i have a hot tooth fetish possibly dentophilia
2: i don't think that's what it's called
0: i hope that's what it's called
2: um so the point is is that question is a little bit difficult because it's i would I would feel much more comfortable looking at it on a case-by-case basis of, okay, assuming these things don't have any sort of objective reality. If it's like, all right, this person thinks they're being menaced by some sort of vampire that's coming into their uh, window every night— um, no, let's let's not jump right to repressed sexuality. Let's actually talk to the patient and see if they have repression around their sexuality. Or maybe the vampire means something completely different. It's a metaphor is, is very, very tricky, as I think any writer knows that the minute you put out, you're just like, the plant symbolized growth and resilience. And everyone else is like, no, the plant symbolized capitalism. It's like, well, actually, you're not wrong because that's what you saw when you read
1: it.
0: Yeah, so for that by the way, for the record, it's called Odontophilia.
1: <sighs> okay.
0: That's sexual attraction to or fantasies involving teeth.
2: I'm very proud of you for for finding that out.
0: I'm proud of me for Googling something. Uh yeah, no, so I I the reason I asked this question, um, You know, it's very much inspired by American Cosmic, this whole idea of what is in that divide between what is the physical manifestation and the meaning we attach to it. Uh, Kind of starting trying to think about paranormal incidents, though, as beyond the personal metaphor, as some sort of larger message or universal archetypal symbol. I, 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 I don't know, I spun my wheels on it for a bit. Thinking about UFOs, for example, and we started... I mean even though we have some records indicating we've been seeing them far longer the traditional narrative is that we've seen them mostly since around the beginning around the beginning of the 1940s um and I could see that being a sort of archetypal symbol of the coming age of technology where technology would come to dominate the entire planet it was sort of like a warning about the future uh, similarly uh a lot of cryptid sightings they occur usually isolated areas, out in nature, uh, and they're they're often kind of terrifying in some regards. We have dogman sightings where it chased people. We have giant owls trashing cars. We have Bigfoot abducting people. And, well, yes, there are, of course, plenty of pleasant interactions with cryptids. The, the propensity for those to be terrifying encounters made me wonder, well, what if that is somehow us uh, interpreting what is fundamentally kind of the natural world reaching out to us to inform us of the violence we're inflicting upon it. And then that message, once it hits us, we apply an overlay of Bigfoot to it. And so we have this experiential encounter, but that is ultimately not the truth. The truth is the natural world is saying, hey, you're fucking me up. Um, and for ghosts, uh, as, as Jay was saying, I could see that easily being this is a message about uh, the history of this place. Maybe there are things here that are still unknown and that uh, that is kind of imprinted on the place. And when we sense on an intuitive level these secrets or this history in this place, our brain then provides the experiential overlay of having a ghost encounter. We sort of create uh, a dream that sort of metaphorically tells us what's going on there. Now, that said, there are a lot of problems with this theory. Uh, for example, how, uh, you know, you can have certain phenomenon, like, say, the flying saucer, which you have seen by many different people, and its, con- its traits are consistent. If it was something that we were, indiv- a skin we were individually applying, I'd expect it to be different. However, we have also seen cases where two people were looking at the same phenomenon and seeing it differently. Mm. That is fair. So I don't know what to make of it. I think it's fascinating. Um, regarding the psyche, on the psychedelic level, I think it's a lot easier to accept that we are applying an overlay over something that is fundamentally ungraspable. I just, I, I can't help but wonder if the same thing is happening in sober world anomalous encounters, especially because uh, look at things like in uh, the Joshua Kutchen book, The Oz Factor, or periods of missing time, or how everything seems to become very still during alien encounters. Um, all these sorts of strange sort of dream logic gets injected into our world, and it makes me wonder if that's because our brain is forced to deal with what it's receiving kind of on the level of dream and metaphor. And so it defaults back to dream logic.
2: I mean, that's, that's entirely possible. And this is kind of what I brought up earlier of our brains are capable of so much. And that doesn't necessarily disqualify these things from being objective reality. It's, we've talked many times that it's like they might occupy different wavelengths of existence and they just need to play with our circuitry a little bit in order to get us to see them and yeah it's cuz and even people looking at the same object and seeing the same seeing different things doesn't necessarily disqualify that because the thing i always go back to is uh you know our our friend Reese has color blindness Reese and I can look at the exact same object and perceive it completely differently because they have color blindness and I, according to multiple eye tests I have taken, uh, score in like the high 80th percentile for ability to perceive shades. Uh, I actually used to get in trouble when I was uh, working in a shipping center because uh, I would argue with my manager about what color certain shirts were. Because he would be like, these shirts are black. And I'm like, these shirts are an exceptionally dark navy, but I can assure you they are not black. And he's like, for the love of God. (laughs)
0: You you sound, you sound so, that sounds so much like my mother.
2: Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean,
0: I I just remember situations when I was a kid where it's like, oh, we're going to, we're going to something where I have to dress up. All right, well, I go in, into the, the old suits I never put on and I'd come downstairs thinking I'm wearing a black jacket and black pants and be like, you got to change your pants. What do you mean? You're wearing navy pants and a black jacket, Nick.
2: You have done that. I've seen you do that. I
0: can't tell the difference. They look the same to me.
2: Yeah. Um, also, fun fact, um, people who are assigned male at birth have a uh, reduced ability to see the difference between shades. It's true. hmm This is a measurable thing.
0: We don't need to see shades. The only color we need to see is the blood of our enemies huh
2: that's actually not too far off from what evolutionary bio- biologists think is being. Oh my God, that.
0: I was just being a shit. Are you kidding me?
2: um there I- okay, okay, so we don't know anything about paleolithic humans we don't we. We, there are some things we think we know, but a lot of our, we don't have written records. We don't, so we're guessing. So there, there's not a ton of evidence to support the theory that men did the hunting, women did the gathering. But if we operate from the assumption of that is true, um, it would have been more evolutionarily advantageous for assigned female-at-birth humans to be able to distinguish between very carefully between the shades of different leaves, berries, flowers, grasses, and things like that, Um, not just for gathering food, but Paleolithic humans did have medicines and did make dyes and tan hides and things like that. And if we operate off of the assumption that men were primarily... Hunting and holding the territory from other tribes and larger apex predators, um, yeah. Uh, so the, the women, uh, female humans would have been gathering, would have been getting the plants that they use to make food and dyes and medicines. And again, sometimes in nature, it's really, really important to know the difference between red and maroon.
0: I know they're different words.
2: Um, maroon is more of a rich, cool, there's kind of...
0: I always think of this closer to crimson. It's like, it's blood colored red.
2: No. Maroon has more purple in it.
0: Maybe I just have weird blood. You ever think about that?
2: Your blood is a normal color. <laughs> if you were bleeding maroon, you would have been in Scientific American years ago. If it's like, this boy's bleeding maroon.
0: Especially because I bled a lot over the, all over that hospital. Someone would have noticed.
2: That blood's a weird color. Shut up, Shirley. No, it's maroon. <laughs> Dr. Stevens, it's maroon. Shut up, Shirley. That's not a real color. <laughs> His blood is puce. If your blood is puce, you're a Vulcan. Puce is a shade of green.
0: I. You know what's funny is uh, I. I for the longest time, I used puce as a color I'd reference without any knowledge of what color it was. Just because I really like how the word sounds.
2: Puce. Are we moving on to section four now?
0: Part four, the experiential approach. And from here, things take a decidedly psychedelic turn towards the weird, as our next speakers explore the topic of DMT entity encounters through the lens of their own lived experiences. Speakers that fit this bill include a familiar face to us here at Noctivagant, Whitley Strieber. However, as his talk largely covered the entity encounters he had while stone sober, and because those experiences were more deeply covered as part of our last summer series, we will move forward into more virgin territory. Chris M. Bach is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University, and also works with the California Institute of Integral Studies and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is also a well-traveled psychonaut. While he has tried DMT on a number of occasions, the 70-plus psychedelic trips he took over the course of a 20-year period came on the wings of another compound, LSD. While other researchers performed their experiments in the hopes of understanding the human mind or the medicinal benefits of psychedelics, Bach instead sought a more esoteric goal to explore the dimension of reality exposed by LSD and, hopefully, gain a more profound view of the universe in the process. These sessions were spaced out over two decades, with a six-year break in the middle, and always entailed the consumption of a high dose of LSD. Each trip occurred at a similar time of day, with the same sitter, and as close to identical conditions as he could manage. Each trip was then recorded and dated in hopes of piecing together an accurate description of that ineffable sense of communion with the transcendent. And what did he find on these journeys? To put it bluntly, death. Though perhaps not as we understand it. Quote, The first death and rebirth is, of course, ego death. It is the total destruction of your time-space identity, of your physical identity. But after one goes through ego death, when death returns in your sessions, you're not simply repeating ego death. I think you're experiencing deeper modalities of death that correspond to deeper dimensions of reality. In other words, as he moved through each layer of the psychedelic journey, he found he had to repeatedly experience the death of some key element of his understanding of self. His first ego death was an intense experience. As he described it, he began the day as a white, highly educated man obsessed with finding the meaning of life. By the end of the day, he had become a woman of color who didn't give a shit about philosophy and a thousand other identities he felt himself adopt and discard over the course of the journey. Thus, he feels the universe was showing him that the roles he had assigned himself, male, white, philosopher, were ultimately nothing more than filters on his consciousness, ones which could be cast aside once he had moved past the threshold of ego. This process took fourteen sessions, spread out over two years to complete, and as a reward for his hard work, he was next plunged into a dimension of pure suffering.
2: Yay!
0: In this stage, he saw endless visions of an inexplicable hell dimension, filled with manifestations of the purest existential suffering. In fact, these experiences were so intense that he was forced to temporarily cease his explorations. However, when he returned six years later, he was amazed to find himself once again plunged into that realm of suffering, as if it had been waiting patiently for his return. At first, he assumed this torment was somehow aimed at achieving his personal liberation, or some sort of psychic catharsis with his own trauma. However, he soon came to realize that, quote, "...it was aimed at healing nothing less than some dimension of the human collective unconsciousness. It was like the universe was using my sessions to detoxify the human species of some of the trauma of its history." of its wars, its murders, its pain. Through this, he came to understand that the universe is not terribly concerned with us as individuals, but rather has some sort of vested interest or plan for us as a collective. And it was this revelation that led him into what he calls the ecstatic phase of his travels, wherein he entered a state he called deep time. In this state, time itself is revealed to be an illusion, in all moments, coexist as part of a single tapestry. Here, he was able to experience his entire life, beginning to end as if it were a single, complete product. Over subsequent sessions, this vision of deep time soon grew to encompass all of creation. Quote, I was taken deep into the beginning of creation. I experienced creation as an act that resulted from two divine beings. One divine being stayed outside of space and time, the other divine being manifested as space and time. He was shown the cosmos and felt the presence of an all-loving entity whom acted as his silent, unseen tour guide. However, when he finally got around to asking this intelligence who it was, he experienced yet another layer of death in which he realized that he had been the tour guide. And, in fact, this theme would continue. Over subsequent sessions, he would find himself guided by an invisible other, whom, upon being questioned, would be revealed to be yet another, deeper layer of self. Soon enough, he came to the conclusion that there was no other out there, and in fact, there was no reality beyond the self. All of existence occurs within that inner space, which we are all a part of. In the next stage, he entered a higher realm he called the greater real, or archetypal reality. And it was here that he experienced the most profound death yet, that of his humanity, meaning his core identity as a member of the human race. Here he encountered other beings he called archetypes, disembodied yet living concepts. Quote, I encountered living beings so huge, so vast, that the closest my mind could come to giving them form was to see them as galaxies, millions of light years across beings, and these were the beings that were responsible for generating time and space itself and the formative conditions within time and space. And through them, he began to experience or understand the nature of reincarnation. Rather than occurring at the individual level, he came to see that it also happened on a species-wide level, and that it was far from random. In fact, from a high enough perspective, he could see that humanity was operating more like a single entity following a clear trajectory towards a plan only known in the deepest, most hidden part of our collective unconsciousness. And if that is getting too weird for you, buckle up, because we've only just begun. The next year began what he dubbed the Benediction of Blessings, in which he entered a state he called causal reality, being a sense of perfect unity with the cosmic intelligence, or God. It was here that he learned, or rather perceived, all of human history as if it were but a single moment. He experienced the deaths of billions, the rise and fall of civilizations, and the endless cruelties that seemed to dominate our insane species. He also glimpsed the future, where he saw a great cataclysm coming, a flurry of destruction so stunning and world-changing that those few who emerge alive will be transformed. They will become the new humanity, one which is not blind to the higher realities and is better able to commune with the higher vibrational intelligences or parts of the self that remain hidden to us here in the modern day. And in fact, it is the creation of this new human which is the goal of all of human history. It is our drama, our story, and each and every one of us came into this, came into this incarnation to be part of it with full knowledge of the trials and tribulations we would face. One more death brought him to the final stop on his journey, a realm of pure light so crystal and clear that it was able to shine through all layers of existence, a place he called the diamond luminosity. Beyond space and time, he initially took this as the final stopping point of consciousness, the ultimate end towards which we are all moving. However, even this, he learned, was merely another step in a journey he would never be able to complete. On his second visit to the luminosity, he experienced an event which altered his entire philosophy on life. He was floating in the realm of light and pure joy when he glimpsed something else, a distant reality that was beyond the diamond luminosity. A beam of light shot from that reality and struck him. Quote, it completely shattered me. And that's when I began to realize that there is no end to this journey. It's an infinite progression. I used to think that sooner or later you'd come to an end point, that you do all this work and there is an end to it. Some call it oneness with God. Stan Groff talked about the fertile void, but I had experienced oneness with God many times. I'd also experienced the fertile void and had discovered that there are many permutations of oneness. This experience taught me that the journey into existence is infinite. You stop when you simply can no longer endure the encounters, when you don't have the energy to keep going anymore and he knew he could endure no more. He made two more trips, which he dubbed his Goodbye Trips, understanding that his journeys had come to an end. During one, he had returned to the vision of the future post-calamity human. Quote, Everything we're going through now, we will see it was worth it to give birth to this being. This is a magnificent being. Human beings are so courageous. We are giving our life and soul and blood in history, and it's going to get bad. But through it, we are giving birth to this future being. But what does any of this tell us about the DMT entity encounters? Well, he has some ideas. He believes these entities exist as distinct entities only within a certain cosmological context. At the lower, base levels of reality, it is possible to perceive yourself as an individual, and many of the entities encountered are of this level, as are we. But the higher one goes, the more those distinctions fall away into a unified whole. Consciousness, in his experience, is an infinite ocean of infinite possibilities, and what we will find there is shaped by our own level of consciousness development. If we are small-minded, we will encounter small ma- small beings. If we are galaxy-minded, we may encounter the archetypes he described. But ultimately, there are no real entities, just as there is no real self. There is only the collective us, here, now, and forever. Which brings us to our fourth discussion question. So Bach's account of his journeys into the psychedelic realm would not be out of place in many of the esoteric texts we've read detailing journeys into the god mind. However, what makes Bach's experience different is the inclusion of a powerful psychedelic as a means of facilitating the journey. So, on a pragmatic level, does the use of LSD damage your ability to believe his account? And if he truly was interacting with transcendent reality, what ramifications could it have to enter those realities using a drug? rather than with meditation and ritual as commonly reported in other esoteric experiences.
1: So, I want to say it was way, way back in the time of uh, John Mack that we actually talked about this a little bit.
0: In the time, Oh, you're, you're referencing the
1: believer. Yes.
0: Okay, in the time of John Mack. Okay, back to the early
1: 90s. No, 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 our time with John Mack. Um, through the lens of Ralph Blumenthal. Yeah, uh, I think we actually talked about this, and I believe that back then I said that you using drugs like this would have would be a shortcut or cheating, and I don't agree with that anymore. Okay, I do think that it is potentially uh, a kind of a shortcut, right? Because the drug uh lets you see things that you may. Pot- Potentially lets you see things that you may or may not have been able to perceive beforehand. But I don't necessarily think that that is cheating because it doesn't come without its own risks. Those risks are ending up like the person that we talked about earlier. That is a risk of using psychedelics. There are dangers to using any drug even ibuprofen. There are dangers to doing anything. So w- with this, with utilizing these things comes, ri- comes risks and therefore risk management that you have to do when you're utilizing these things. So does the potential, uh, and it's not guaranteed. So does the, I guess you have to think to yourself, does the, uh, the possibility of being able to enter these realms while using a drug Outweigh the potential risks to your permanent psyche. Yeah. Like, so
0: your long term health is on the line.
1: Yeah. So there is that level that you have to think about when you're doing it, especially when you know or you think theoretically that it is possible because others have achieved it, quote unquote, beforehand by just doing the inward journey without the drugs. But I do think that there is a different experience that can come with utilizing the psychedelics. Because you may not have been mentally ready otherwise, what you're going to experience is going to be a full-on fucking blast to the face. And you will not be able to experience that by going the long road.
0: The image I have in my head is... uh you know the person who's trying to experience the spirit world through meditation and inward journey they they, have, they they're pointing a garden hose at their face but they they're the ones with their hand on the lever determining how much water is coming out right whereas uh in the other situation you're holding a garden hose to your face and your asshole friend is controlling the lever to determine how much water comes out and if i'm that friend i'm absolutely soaking you
1: yeah yeah So I I I think that there I think whichever route you decide to take when going for this experience is gonna be is gonna lead well might lead to some of the same conclusions. It will not be the same path. And a lot of the people that go through that I that we've seen or read about or that I've known or that I've you know, like I follow some TikTokers or whatever. They have that initial experience and then they go down and they do it more. They utilize the drugs more to continue having these experiences. But ultimately, you know what it ends up leading them to do? The same journey. They end up walking down the same path, doing the same kind of self-reflection and meditation that they wouldn't have done without having had that experience. So for a lot of people, it's the door that, that opens them to this path, whereas they may not have gotten that without the drug. They may not have been able to without the drug because they had maybe some hangups that were getting in the way, like PTSD, like depression, like anxiety, like all of these other things that were literally getting in the way and without the use of the drug, they couldn't get past it. So maybe that is just opening up their brain or their self to something that they couldn't have gotten otherwise. So. Yes, that, that so I, I I don't anymore think that it is cheating. Uh, that it's like a cheat a cheat code to enlightenment or anything like that. Uh, I think that it is uh, more of a different path. That's uh, or a different almost entryway to get to ultimately the same path that you're going to be taking one way or the other.
0: So, in prep for this episode, I uh, sought out a couple. Internet communities of DMT trippers to read their experiences, and I did see a couple of instances where people uh, took the drug, encountered an entity, and the entity was like very happy to see them. there, welcoming. Hey, welcome back. They often always say welcome back, which I think is interesting.
1: It's also something that you hear from some uh, alien abductees. Exa- yes, yep, and exactly. some uh, Men in Black experiences too. I've I've read yeah, about.
0: But one thing that a couple of them were told was also, we're, we're happy to see you, but not like this. this. You know, you shouldn't be here like this. You know, uh, and, you know, obviously you could read that, like we were saying, as being, they cheated to get there. It's not how you're supposed to do it. Or it could be, that's not the path they were supposed to take, them mm-hmm. specifically.
1: Yep. So I just had a thought, uh, Jay. Yes. The whole, you're not supposed to be here like this, made me think of something of yours, a story you told me.
2: Uh yeah, that that dream I had yes, where so- I was wandering around that weird town and that guy basically came running up to me and was just like, "What are you? Everyone can see you. Do you know where you are?" Yeah. And ba- yeah, and basically he spun me around and said, "Go straight home. Don't talk to anybody. Do not tell anybody your name. You are not supposed to be here."
0: I I don't know what to make of that. It's a still a fascinating story. Yep. Yeah.
2: Very very vivid and I I cannot stress to you two and to our listeners how very alarmed this stranger was when he spotted me. I was also like if it if it if it uh it, I believe I was about 15 when I had that dream, so I was also quite young. <laughs> um and for my answer to the question uh For the first half, no, I don't doubt his experiences more because he was on psychedelics like I was talking about. And I believe the first discussion question, even if these journeys are completely self-generated and have no objective reality, much like uh, was discussed in American Cosmic, that is not the point. I don't think it's ever been the point with things like this. Um, religion seems to be coded into the human brain to a level where, again, I don't think its objective reality matters nearly as much as what we use it for as a tool intrinsic to our species. It's, it's kind of like, it, it, to the point where it seems almost as natural to us as singing, of it's like, we don't have to, it's a thing humans do, and it's, and it doesn't, it doesn't need to go beyond that. It's a thing that humans do, and if we use it right, it doesn't hurt anybody. So, like, it's fine. It's fine. I don't I don't doubt his experiences more because he was on psychedelics. Cause the bottom line is th- that's not the point. And that's not what I mean by real. Like, and as for look, if If I take the elevator one day to get to the second floor of my office and take the stairs the next day, I still fucking got to the lobby and to my office on time, you know? And there's some people, like Rory said, there's some people that have to use the elevator. There are some people that were born without legs and will never walk. And they can't climb the stairs, no matter how much we think everyone should climb the stairs. That's what the elevator is. And just some people do not have the patience or the time or the monetary resources to become a Franciscan nun and uh, fast for a month straight while spending 18 hours a day in intensive silent prayer. And even if they did that, you know, it might just be like a person lying on the stairs because they're paralyzed from the neck down and they're like, there is no amount of willpower that is going to move my body up these steps and into the office i yeah i don't I don't think that there is necessarily a fundamental difference between achieving union with the Godhead via psychedelics or via intensive prayer and i I weirdly think it's a little arrogant and puritanical of humans to be assigning moralistic values to those two different pathways to an experience we don't fucking understand at all. Like that, that to me, when I take a step back from it, looks a little ridiculous and just starts to, it just reminds me of the people that would, when they found out I was on anti-anxiety meds, they're like, oh, I cured my OCD with willpower. If it's like, I highly doubt you did that. And even if you did, good for you. Fuck off entirely.
1: Yeah, uh, good. I That fucking drives me insane. Like, that happens all the time. Every time I, because I'm a proponent of people utilizing their uh, medication for their mental health. You know, yeah. Uh, I take, ADHD meds. I was on an antidepressant and probably should go back on it because we were testing whether or not the ADHD meds alone would uh, supplement my depression. It did. It doesn't anymore. Um, but I, I, it drives me absolutely insane when people are like, well, you know, I used to take antidepressants and I got off them because y- yada, yada, yada. And I was able to fight my depression through sheer willpower alone. And I was like, and my reply every single time I want it to be good for you, like that's that's fine. But like you're y- you're not me. You're not everybody else. Like some people n- need medication, and that's a that's okay. You know, like it's almost like they're shitting on the medication just because they were able to beat it via willpower. So they say.
0: Well, I mean that's a big issue I think beyond medications or mental health issues just with the world people have this assumption that well I did it so everyone can
1: yeah it's the American bootstraps mentality which they forgot that almost everybody uh, who quote-unquote pulled themselves up by their bootstraps didn't actually pull themselves up by their bootstraps but were spoon-fed
0: I I think uh, personally I think I I fall uh, Roughly around where Jay, where Jay was saying, I I think personally looking at these experiences, I I don't think it's a shocker to anyone that these experiences are fucking weird, um, and they don't make a hell of a lot of of sense from a, a secular viewpoint, um. But like looking at this guy's ex- looking at box experience here and everything we just talked about the transcendent reality the diamond luminosity other reality shooting laser beams at him like some sort of gnostic Star Wars, and then we look at say, uh, Sorowardi's inward journey ending at this giant mirror in which he saw his own face and upon entering it it became the universe because the universe was within him, one was achieved through intensive meditation, one through LSD. And to me, the experiences are both so already so difficult to believe. The, L- the fact that one came on the wings of LSD is almost an afterthought in my mind. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's, the story is already out there enough, and already, if you're not going to believe these sorts of things, you're already not going to believe what this guy has to say, regardless of if it, if it involved LSD or not.
1: You know what it makes me think of too is the Seven Seals for Jenny Tyson.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and that's the thing is I also think, the and this is we talked about this with the Jenny Tyson book. Here is the difficulty with for me with reading uh, accounts like Jenny's or like Box, is that ultimately it feels like what we're reading is is their best attempt to interpret something that cannot be described. Uh, at least in, ter- in its actuality. And so ultimately, we're just getting these sort of sideways glimpses colored through the contextual and cultural framework of that individual. Um, and because- for that reason, is any of it real? Is any of it not? Those aren't the right questions. That doesn't matter, ultimately, because we can't know that. What we can know is, what meaning did this have for the individual? And if using LSD gets you to the point that you have these transcendent experiences and become a better person, well, then that's what it took for you. Uh, like, for example, the whole stairs versus elevator thing. I'm fairly confident in that metaphor. I am a limbless torso writhing on the ground, uh, trying to use my jaw to inch my way into the elevator.
2: Pierce Galveston?
0: <laughs> but yeah, I think that's my answer. Are we ready for the last part? Yep. Yes! Part 5. The Humanities Approach In the humanities, we don't seek explanations, says speaker Jeffrey Cripple in his talk, Biological Gods, Science Fiction, and Some Emergent Mythologies. Rather, we seek meaning. What is the narrative at play? Who does this story belong to? And what can it tell us about the nature of subjectivity, consciousness, and myth? Regarding the psychedelic entity encounters we have discussed thus far, Cripple believes that they are part of a new story, or mythology, emerging into our global culture. Quote, Religions are essentially big stories, otherwise called mythologies. I think that what's happening through a lot of these entheogenic encounters, and this turn to ecology and the natural world, is that a new story is emerging, and that this is profoundly dependent on the sciences and what we're learning about the natural world. But the sciences are not sufficient. To produce that story, you need something else. So that's where I'm coming from. And it is that story which is his focus, as he believes the entities encountered both during the psychedelic experiences and those encountered in sober life are indicators of where this is all heading. A story which may begin on June 25, 1947, when Kenneth Arnold witnessed nine silver discs flying through the sky near Yakima, Washington, and kick-started a UFO craze that swept the country. For a time, the story was one of horrific abductions, sightings of little gray men in space-age terror. However, in the 1960s and 70s, two familiar researchers came along and turned the page, John Keel and Jacques Vallée, both of which noted the odd connection between the UFO phenomenon and those observing it with the former often adjusting its behavior seemingly for no other reason than to astound, befuddle, or entrance those engaging with it. We have discussed the theories of both men at length on this show, so I won't go into it here, but much as Keel saw the nefarious games of ultra-terrestrials and Valais saw the hands of some otherworldly control mechanism, Cripple 2 sees the UFO as a modern mask for an ancient divinity. Rather than adopting the viewpoint popularized by television shows like Ancient Aliens, he does not believe that ancient gods were aliens in disguise, but that the reverse is true, and the aliens we see in the skies today are themselves the gods of old. Vindication! Or at least that they are the same phenomenon our ancestors called gods, with both that interpretation and the modern UFO mythos being nothing more than a cultural skin placed over a reality that is likely beyond our ability to comprehend.
2: Vindication?
0: Less so. Citing a quote from famed psychedelic pioneer Terence McKenna, he notes, We are part of a symbiotic relationship with something which disguises itself as an extraterrestrial invasion as not to alarm us. Cripple then goes on to explore this idea and how our conscious mind may be giving shape to and interacting with divine reality through the lens of three authors who all had their own unique encounters with the anomalous, And we begin this journey with legendary science fiction author Philip K. Dick. On February 20th, 1974, Dick was at home recovering from an oral surgery, his mind hazed by a heaping helping of sodium pentothal he had been administered for the procedure, when a young woman came to his door to deliver a package of painkillers. She was wearing an ichthys necklace, the Christian symbol of a fish. Seeing the golden shape reflected in the sun triggered a moment of transcendent epiphany, which somehow opened his life up to the ineffable Other. Over the next several months, he began experiencing memories of past lives, which led him, life by life, to his celestial origin. Being a god intelligence, he dubbed Valus, an acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. Through his communion with Valis, Dick came to believe that the entire universe is made up of language, and by relation, the acts of reading and writing were fundamentally occult in nature. Quote, This is a theme I will come back to often. The paranormal has something to do with language, and so professional writers tend to be attracted to the subject, find it meaningful, find it real. Dick distilled these ideas into his last three novels, Valis, The Divine Invasion, and The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, which in their own way act as a secret Gnostic gospel, which Dick believed had been channeled to him through this divine intelligence. The purpose? To change people. The words were imbued with what he called a plasmate, a sort of energetic force somehow bound not to the paper and ink, but to the meaning behind them. Those who read the texts were then infused with this plasmate, becoming homoplasmate, hence contributing to the evolution of our species towards some undefined end. Of course, Cripple is quick to point out, none of this makes any goddamn sense from a rational, secular viewpoint. But just like with the encounters with DMT entities, it was real in his subjective reality, and may ultimately be a metaphoric interpretation of some other ungraspable truth. A metaphor heavily coded in ideas farmed from Gnostic Christianity, a worldview with which Dick was already familiar. This idea then emerges again in the works of Whitley Strieber, where he often hypothesized that the visitors indicate some sort of special power within us to apply a contextual overlay, or meaning to the transcendent, and hence manifest it in physical reality. Quote, "His deepest hunches can, in fact, be had on the very first page of the book where he introduces the book with the line, the enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. And if we are to read his experience as a metaphor, then what are we to make of all the sex and sexual violation? As Cripple argues, these could be signifiers that the process that was actually occurring beneath the experiential overlay is evolution. After all, physical evolution is very much driven by sex and reproduction. The sexual elements of Strieber's experiences could then be seen as a metaphor for the spiritual evolution he underwent. Quote, This, I would add, makes Strieber's erotic mysticism a profoundly heretical or heterodox one within the Roman Catholicism of his youth and upbringing. There was a deeply ironic Catholic undertone or undertow to all this. Communion, after all, signals the sacrament of the Eucharist for any Catholic reader. That is, it signals a sacramental or mystical union with a male deity, not a female one. This, I suspect, is another reason Strieber's experiences are so alien, so demonized, so othered in the public culture. They simply do not respect, or they openly violate, the sexual structure of the traditional monotheistic imagination, in which the divine, of course, is almost always male. And our third author is Barbara Einrich, who detailed her experiences with the transcendent in her book, Living with a Wild God. In 1958, then-17-year-old Einrich went skiing with friends on Northern California's Mammoth Mountain. On the return trip, they stopped to sleep for a few hours in a small town called Lone Pine, sleeping in the car as none could afford a hotel. When she woke, sore and thirsty, she stepped out of the car and directly into a life-shattering experience. Quote, Suddenly the physical world burst into living fire. She invoked the biblical burning bush to describe what she knew then, but there was very little biblical, much less monotheistic, about the experience. She then underwent an ineffable experience in which she realized that everything was alive, not just the plants and animals, but all of reality as part of a single entity spoken of in Eastern mysticism as the All. The presence of this entity raged through her, and she felt herself torn to pieces as if by a horde of invisible angels. Herself a lifelong atheist and scientist studying theoretical physics and cell biology, she hid her experiences for years out of fear of ridicule from her secular-minded family and friends. Yet, the experience haunted her, and kept returning no matter how hard she tried to forget it. And, perhaps informed by her scientific background, she came to believe that the entity she had encountered was some form of undetectable life, a biological god whose existence permeated all of reality. So where does that leave us in regards to these experiences? Are they accurate reports of lived events, fantasies, metaphors? To Cripple, these questions sit at the heart of not only these narratives, but of all entity encounters, be they psychedelic or otherwise. All three authors were well aware of the metaphoric qualities of the experience, of how their own cultural and spiritual worldviews shaped their ultimate understanding of the phenomenon they encountered. Yet all three also voiced the opinion that beyond the skin, there was something there, and that there is not something which can be explained or understood in its actual form. Furthermore, just as many DMT trippers have noted, the experience seemed to be curtailed or scripted for their benefit. Quote, Such reflective loops, I must add, also reflect ancient sensibilities in comparative mystical literature, which were often deep in conversation with cutting-edge philosophical currents. Hence the epigraph from Meister Eckhart, with which Whitley and I began our recent book. The eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. Hence also the owl eye on our cover, staring back at our reader's eye in a visual loop. Each of these three authors discussed here performs the same reflective weirdness. Each knows that he or she is scripted, and there is something or someone beyond the script. Each tries, moreover, to take some control or authority over this scripting through, what else? More scripting, that is, more writing. The act of writing, of language in this context, can be seen as almost religious in nature, a way of communing with a higher reality from which authors like Dick, Strieber, and Einrich believe they pull their ideas or inspiration. It is, in effect, taking the reins and giving shape to the stories they receive from the higher reality, and in turn, shaping the narrative of our species that is to come. They give form to the ineffable, and in doing so, shape the cultural overlay through which future interactions with the divine will be interpreted. So perhaps it should be no surprise that when we see a silver disc and then write about little green men from Mars abducting our cattle, we end up losing some cows. That brings us to our final discussion question. So. (laughs) This is stepping a little bit outside of DMT entity encounters, but I couldn't resist. All three of us are, in our own ways, creatives. And so I want to take a moment to sit with this idea that the creative act is somehow occult in nature and is in fact a way of giving form and claiming personal agency over ideas plucked from unconscious communion with transcendent reality. Regarding your own creative endeavors, where do you think your ideas come from? What do they feel like? And have you ever felt you were in communication with something else during the creative process?
2: So, honestly, I think my ideas tend to come from other people's ideas. Not that I plagiarize or copy, but that frequently I need to consume creative content and things from other people, other creative people or eventually the you know the cup run empty. Oh, I get and, it. You, yeah. you take all
0: that other all those other stories, you pulp them for their juice and you drink that to nourish your creative engine.
2: Yep, basically. Um and sometimes it feels like I'm possessed and words are just flowing out of me like blood from a gunshot wound, but um that can also be attributed to ADHD hyperfocus um more than you know <sighs> when i'm writing i don't feel i i don't all i when i am writing i don't think i have ever felt like i am in communion with a with a higher being or with something that is supernatural it feels like it 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 feels like it comes from inside me it does it, it feels like it comes from me but again it's it sometimes it's blood from a gunshot wound where it's coming from me i don't have control necessarily over the speed with which it is coming out uh other times it is uh drawing the blood out one agonizing drop at a time um But uh, in terms of communing with something higher, uh, the closest I feel to that is when I get into a very particular headspace while I am divining. Uh, That tends to be when I feel in the most communion with something because my main patron deity is Apollo, the god of prophecy, and uh, also one of his sacred plants is weed. Uh, So when I'm very, very high on marijuana and I'm doing tarot, that is when i tend to feel his presence most strongly and the thing is people don't realize that tarot is a creative act it is it is spinning a story out of these archetypal images and this uh nuanced symbolism so that's the closest that i feel that i feel to him when i am divining now that doesn't necessarily mean that my creativity doesn't come from something higher because Apollo is also a god of the arts. And, uh, but yeah, to me, even when I need fuel from other creative ideas in order to craft my own, it still, at the end of the day, feels like it comes from inside me. And I think I've actually mentioned a few times I sometimes get deeply uncomfortable when people make the blanket statement of, oh, we're just channels for creative energy. We're just conduits for it because that, to me, feels like it discredits the sheer amount of work that I frequently have to put into what I am creating. Because, again, sometimes it is one agonizing blood drop at a time. And it just it it, it feels dismissive and it feels like it, it. feels like it's minimizing the amount of effort and pain and practice I've had to get through to get my skills to where they're at. Because if I was just a conduit, I would have been writing as well now as I was at 13. But no, my writing now is much better than it was at 13 because I fucking practiced.
0: Yeah, I I think I you know I I think I feel very similar. I think uh, my own creative ideas when I'm working, there are times where it just seems to explode out of some hidden reservoir within me, and there are times when uh, blood from a stone. You know that pretty much last three weeks of my life has been that. Uh, I try to write every day, and oh boy, it's been rough. Um, but that said, I think if I was going to try to entertain this idea that we are somehow conduits to this higher reality and we're giving form to those. I, I think I would see it not as it's doing the writing for us. It's that we are still doing a lot of hard work. We are taking these ungraspable concepts that we only understand on a distant subconscious intuitive level and we're giving them form through stories where we're, we're trying to get, take these ideas that really are not easy to get at, and we're, we're presenting them within a certain contextual framework in order to make them accessible. And what I mean by that is, I don't know, like me personally, I, obviously there's been moments in my life I've experienced big emotions, but I have experienced so many big emotions through books, and when you look at it, uh, just looking at the words of the page, just looking at the set, the, you know, there's no individual power there. It's ink on a page, but there's something about the storytelling process that allows us to uh, translate these feelings over vast distances. Honestly, to me, the whole idea that writing is an occult act, I was already there because if you think about it, writing is an incredibly powerful tool that we have. It's necromancy. I can right now pick up a book and read the words of the dead. I I can get their ideas. They can provoke emotions in me. They can uh, change how I look at the world. And that, to me, that's incredible. Um, and going even further than that, this whole idea that we are kind of in this in exchange with, of creative energies with the universe, I think if I was to adopt that as a worldview, I would have to see it as uh, we are kind of like jewelers. We take an unformed lump of coal and we turn it into a diamond ring. And then that diamond ring goes on to inform other jewelers who are making other diamond rings. And it sort of becomes this uh, echo chamber of ideas that goes all the way back through all of human history with us recycling these archetypes and these stories over and over again and trying to find new ways to look at them and new ways to experience them.
1: So to the base of the question, I have no idea where my ideas come from. Because I don't, like, I, am I creative? Yes, I think I'm very creative. But I think my creativity is very different from, like, the two of you. Because I'm not a writer. Uh, I've tried. I'm, it's just not who I am. It's not what I, what I do. Um, I, I guess the closest I've gotten to that is the writing poetry. Uh even that I don't really I, I don't I I couldn't even I couldn't even really tell you where I think that came from because a lot of times I wrote the spoken word poems that I've done and that I've performed and that I've I've written I wrote in one sitting. I would something would hit me, you know, an idea or whatever would hit me and I would write the whole thing from start to finish and I would never touch it again. I'd be done. That was it. That was the whole thing. And then I would perform it you know, whatever it was. I think the exception to that is like maybe two or three poems that I've written in my life I wrote over multiple sessions because like a line would come to me and I would write that line down. But then later when I would actually sit down and I would look at that line, the rest of the poem would come to me. No, you know? It's
0: it's funny. Uh, It's actually very similar. So typically my stories start with an image, not a line. I'll get an image in my head and then I build outward from that as I'm working on it, so it's it almost seems like there's a seed that we receive,
1: yeah. and then other things that I do, and I I think with the parts of me that are more creative is like uh, I'm I'm good at, I'm I'm good at thinking about, like I'm good at uh uh like creating like uh taking an idea and creating something from it like in. Uh, for example, what I do, one of the things that I do for my job is I, I create, um, like, yeah, I, I don't want, like, I, I, I sometimes it's I create calculators or I create, you know, these other things and I do very unique things with them through Excel and other programs. Uh, and I think they're very cool and a lot of people uh, definitely can't do what, or can't do or don't want to learn with the things that I do because I write it through macros and code. And there is a level of creativity that comes with that because you have to think about how, like, the different ways that you're going to have the the uh, you know the, the spreadsheet or the program do what it is that you want to do. And a lot of that is kind of what you what you were saying, Jay. Um, I don't know if that's uh, ADHD hyperfocus or or what, but like, I I have and do constantly. I'll have an idea and then I'll write 500 lines of code. Mm-hmm. In one sitting.
0: Those are great days.
1: Yeah. It's like I got a shitload done. And then, but then other days I don't write a single line, you know, and those days are spent testing the 500 lines I wrote the day before, you know, or whatever it is. Um, And uh, honest to God, like, and that's why I think it's hard for me to tell the difference if it's ADHD hyper focus or something else, because it feels like a fever dream sometimes. Like I'm just... Fucking going, and I, all of a sudden, it's been you know my whole ten hour day is gone, and I'm just like, whoa, what just happened? You know,
0: I I mean, there were incidents I remember on a couple occasions. I wrote a twenty page story in a sitting, and looking back, I don't remember making any of the decisions I made in yeah. that story.
1: And the the funny thing about this for me is like whenever I've tried intentionally to sit down and write. I get nothing done. I cannot do it. I, and I, and like, I've even done it where it's like, I've sat down and I've tried to write, like using some of the techniques from on writing by Stephen King and some of the things that you, that you've shared with me, Nick, I've tried to do those disciplines and I, the things that I produce are just garbage from any perspective. Like it good, like it's not good. And I don't know why that is for me, but I could, but on the flip side, you know, not doing that, I can do that with coding. Like I could just sit down and start to code something. I did that today. Somebody asked me to create something in Excel and I did it in 15 minutes. I had no inspiration, didn't give a shit about it. I just did it. Um, And maybe that was because it was my, it's my job and I didn't have a choice, but I could have pushed it off. It wasn't urgent. I just, did it because I knew how to do it or I understood what it was. Um, and I still went and created something more than what they asked for, you know? Um, so I, 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 don't, I, I don't necessarily know where it all comes from, I think, but I think that each individual has a creative spark in them. It's how they want to express that creative spark and finding that niche. And I've spent so much of my life trying to find the proper outlet for my creativity because I know that it's there, right? And I've sought it for my entire life, whether it was through music, trying to, produ- like trying to produce and create music through rap or through, uh, through bands or whatever it might be, through spoken word poetry, through writing through code, through whatever it is, it's it's been an, an active journey to find that creative outlet through storytelling. And I love that one. Through yeah. uh through creating Magic the Gathering decks. Yeah, I absolutely think that my that deck building is an aspect and is an aspect of creativity. Oh absolutely because, it is. Hands down. Because uh uh it, it it's not just the mechanics, you know, that obviously plays a part in it, but there is a level of you have, to be, you have to be creative to be able to even utilize some of those mechanics. You can net deck all day you want, but if you don't have the spark to understand and create beyond just net decking, it's never going to work. It, you could build the best deck in the world, and it won't work for you because every play style, every play game, every pod is different, whatever. Side tangent about Magic the Gathering. Um. But the last part of your question here is interesting to me. If I've ever felt that I've been in communication with something else during the creative process, the answer to that is yes. For every spoken word poem that I've written except for two, I felt like I was in communication with something else and that something else was God. Because every spoken word poem that I wrote except for two were written while I was actively inside an evangelical church but they're still good. Like the poems I wrote, while I don't agree with the things that I said in them, the poems I think are fantastic. And I have no idea where that shit came from other than I was inspired by God in that moment.
2: That's entirely possible.
0: Well, and and it, it doesn't, I mean, we, as we often say on the show, it doesn't, it, It doesn't have to be, nor is it likely ever going to be all one way or the other. Mm -hmm. There could be times where the creative act is divinely inspired. There could be times where the rest of the time you're toiling away with your own uh, interior library of ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, I mean, when I was trying to think about have I ever felt like I was in communion with something, I can't say I have. I can say I have experienced the fugue. Um, yeah. where I I suddenly produced something that seemed far more competent than I believe myself to be. Yeah. Oh
2: god, yeah, when you go back and you're reading something and you're like this came out of me? Like there was this one line that I still cannot believe that I wrote. Um growing up is realizing your parents are as powerless as you are.
0: Yeah. I, and I mean, for example, I have a story which at some point next year is going to be coming out in a copy, in an edition of Friction Magazine. Woo! Um, And that story was entirely, I don't know where that came from.
1: It's so good, though.
0: I I like it. I I think it's, I like the story a lot. I wish I knew who wrote it.
1: You did. So, uh, just to to uh, self-plug all of our stuff, if you're ever curious, listeners, and want to hear one of my old uh, spoken word poems, you can still find one of them on YouTube since uh, somebody that I know who does videography actually videoed one of, like, did a, a, a video for me of one of my poems. If you just search Dart to Change Spoken Word Poetry on YouTube, it'll be there. Um, it's pretty good. Like, the video is great. The poem itself is pretty good. I am. Um,
2: I've heard it, I love it.
1: It's I, I don't agree necessarily with my whole message in there, but it's a little snippet of my life story leading up to that moment. Um,
2: Your eyes are closed the entire time.
1: Yeah, that's because I'm trying to remember the poem because <laughs> I, I uh, am not good at memorizing things. Uh, and that whole thing was done probably in about 50 takes because I was doing it essentially like five lines at a time because I couldn't remember my own, my own poem. Because I, I, I'm just not very good at memorizing things. The only time I was ever good at it was back in high school when I was doing, high school and a little after when I was performing music, because I was doing the songs over and over again to practice, which I obviously should have done with the poems. Um, but I was doing the songs over and over again because in, in that time in hip-hop, in rap, you were just doing the music for your friends over and over again, and you were all memorizing that shit. You know, so I like I had I, I still remember some of the lyrics from songs that I wrote 15 years ago. Um, I couldn't tell you lines from poems I wrote two years ago. Uh, I still remember every word from lose yourself. I don't understand that. Probably because I listened to it a whole bunch. But yeah, sorry, I'm rambling.
2: No, it's all right. You're good. All right. Have we beaten that to death?
0: I think we've beaten that question to death. Uh, All right. So we're ready for the about the author. Yes. So uh, rather than about the author, this is actually about the editors, as there are a ton of authors in this book. Uh, We're going to be talking about the two individuals who primarily edited and put together this nice collection. The first is David Luke. Luke is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Greenwich, where he teaches courses and exceptional human experiences. He is an honorary senior lecturer at the Center for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College, and his research into transpersonal experiences, anomalous phenomenon, and altered states of consciousness have been published in over a 100 academic papers and in over 10 books, including, but not limited to, Psychedelic Mysteries of the Feminine, Creativity, Ecstasy, and Healing, DMT Dialogues, Encounters with the Spirit Molecule, which is the precursor to this book, as it covers a previous gathering held in 2015, Other Worlds, Psychedelics, and Exceptional Human Experience, Talking with the Spirits, Anthographies from Between Worlds, and several more. He directs the Ecology, Cosmos, and Consciousness Salon at the Institute of Ecotechnics London. He is the co-founder and director of the Breaking Convention Academic Conference on Psychedelic Consciousness, From 2009 to 2011, he served as the president of the Parapsychological Association, and he has given over 300 public lectures and presentations, has won numerous teaching, research, and writing awards, and has organized festivals, conferences, seminars, retreats, pagan cabarets, and pilgrimages. He has journeyed the world from India to South America to sit with scientists and shamans alike, seeking alternative ways of seeing the world, and by extension, reality. And he currently resides in Sussex, England. Our other editor is Rory Spowers, who is an ecological writer, campaigner, and filmmaker. He was born in Wales and moved to Sri Lanka in 2004, and in 2012 he moved to Ibiza, Spain, where he currently resides. He is the author of numerous books and articles, including, but not limited to, A Year in Green Tea and Tuk-Tuk's My Unlikely Adventure Creating an Eco-Farm in Sri Lanka, Three Men on a Bike, A Journey Through Africa, and Rising Tides, A History of the Environmental Revolution and Visions for an Ecological Age. He is the creative director of the Tieringham Project, a think tank dedicated to new paradigm projects and consciousness research, and was in fact the organization responsible for putting on the event that eventually led to this book. He is the founder of the Web of Hope, a UK-based charity and ecological educational resource. And he is also the lead curator of the Amorivore Food and Consciousness Festival. He is also the founder of Regeneration, an organization dedicated to helping people learn how to live in ecologically-minded ways and endure possible systemic collapses of global systems. And uh, that's about it. Two very uh, interesting dudes once I started looking
1: into it. Yeah. So are we ready for housekeeping?
2: Housekeeping.
1: Housekeeping.
2: Housekeeping.
1: All right. So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to us on. And if it is Apple or Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. But if you do want to reach out to us uh, for any reason at all, you want to yell at us, you want to give us a book suggestion. You can do that, Noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or on social media. While Twitter is still around, Pod, And I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror.
2: I'm at Midwest Undead.
1: And we have a plethora of other social medias on Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivigant
0: Podcast.
2: And a Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast. It's mostly memes. It's all memes.
1: It's all memes. It's all memes. All right. All right. Any, anything else? I think that's it. So, good night, ghosties. Good
0: night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads.
2: Don't get lost.
1: Unless you want to. Just follow the signposts.
2: Please don't get lost.
0: Saw me. the signposts down. And run off into the night.
1: Don't. We'll be liable. You don't need guides.
2: We'll be liable.
1: Don't do anything to the signposts. We've worked real hard to put them there.
0: There is one story, which I was hoping would come up in this episode, but Rory chose not to share it. And maybe, just maybe one day, you listener at home will get to hear the story of the time Rory rubbed their entire face off on a carpet. You
1: know, the only reason I didn't tell that story was because I didn't think of MDMA as a psychedelic.
0: Point to (laughs) end.